just waiting for Trey to get in and the room to fill up, and then I'll bring up speakers after that. Uh, working VPN? Is that what he told you? No, I'm just assuming. <laughs> I'm just assuming. I already, I told him 25 minutes ago, I said, you have 25 minutes to find a VPN that isn't shitty. There he is. Hi, Shay. <clears throat> Hello. Hello. Hi. Hello, everybody. Hey, Shay. Hey, guys. What are you up to? I'm sitting by my window looking out uh, at the center of Moscow. That's what I'm looking at right now. I'm actually, I don't really have any questions for you because I don't even like you all that much. So, um, <laughs> and I talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I talk to you. I talk to you every day. So I'm just gonna like open it up to um, the room and uh, and also if you guys can't come up and speak, please feel free to leave your questions in the chat for Shay. Um, he's RT correspondent uh, currently in Moscow uh, from obviously Ireland. So yeah, go ahead, Al. Oh, hi, Shay. Big fan. Really, really love your reporting from the ground. You know, awesome work. Really, really awesome. And you're doing a great service to give us all the actual and real info so that the fog that's created from MSM is really lifted. So really appreciate all the work you're doing and very grateful for that. I have a quick question, uh, slightly unrelated to the war. Uh, how much of assistance is China giving to Russia in terms of military logistics? Because the new Chinese map that has come out shows China in control of an island which was supposed to be divided 50-50 uh, between Russia and China. I think it's on the Amur River, according to their 2008 agreement. Has that caused any waves in Moscow? Because on the other hand, I also read that, you know, Putin will be visiting uh, Beijing very soon. So if you have any news on that, this was very uh, surprising to us about the map. Hey, well, look, I mean, first of all, I'm not an expert in Russian Chinese affairs. I tend to focus more on the European stuff. But what I can tell you is I actually covered uh, Xi Jinping's uh, visit to Moscow uh, when he when he came, this very sort of dynamic visit. Geopolitics really spelt out a direction for Russia. Uh, I mean, when people saw she come to uh, Moscow and I was at the airport when his plane landed and I reported from right beside him and Putin and I saw them together, you really believed that these two uh, men, I think they're actually very fond of each other, first of all. I think body language is really important, even at a high level. It's, it's You can see when people are genuinely warm and when they actually feel... Uh, uh, you know, sort of united uh, in a standpoint politically and geopolitically, and Russia and China certainly are. Uh, but to speak to your point about the Amur River, and I was actually in Amur uh, looking, drinking a cup of tea uh, in a place called Blagoshevensk, uh, looking across the Amur River at China about a month ago when I went to Vostochny to watch the launch of the uh, failed Russian mission uh, to the moon. And 
I was looking across at China, drinking a cup of tea, thinking this is quite bizarre because all the shops in Blagoshevinsk, most of them were Chinese and people freely were moving across the border. And China's about to lift uh, any restriction on people traveling from Russia into China visa-wise. We're also told that. So I think there are some small um, disputes between Russia and China. There's some disputes certainly between Russia and Japan. There's some there are territorial disputes between India and China who are you know, colleagues and friends in BRICS as well. So I think the reflection of the map, it's certainly not going to be uh, that little piece of grid in the in the mayonnaise certainly isn't going to stop this. What Putin and Xi have described as a, a, ref, a, a relationship with absolutely no limits. You know, and I posted, I think, on my Twitter, a picture of me drinking Chinese Coca-Cola uh, in a uh, Russian restaurant. And the sort of pragmatism with which the the Chinese people in, in Russia, in that part of the Russian Far East, and the Russians in that part of China see this relationship, they just see it as a mutually beneficial thing. There is some suspicion in Russia of China, and likewise in in uh, in Russia. Of course, it's it's it, it's a historically prickly enough relationship. But I think in the bigger uh, um, sort of on the bigger map, what you see now is essentially China sees Russia uh, doing uh, a lot of demilitarizing of NATO and of the Russia is getting a lot of work done to empty the stocks of heavy weapons, shells, also testing the political will of basically, you know, NATO to back a war, any war, uh, which I think is fractious and failed. Anyway, and that's been proven. Uh, and I think what China is getting to see is how would the West respond should we uh, come to a, a, a military uh, uh, en passe on, on Taiwan. It's also seeing how terrible, terribly prepared the West is, the United States included, militarily, uh, economically and socially for a ground uh, war, which Europe hasn't seen in since the end of the second war and obviously uh you know america has never seen really america hasn't seen a conflict on its soil really uh, since the american civil war essentially so i think what china is doing it's it's benefiting hugely it's getting cheap energy it's also opened up a vast market in russia i mean everything you want here that you can get in the west you can get it here but you can get it probably cheaper and quicker which is absolutely remarkable I recently wrote a piece about the Chinese auto industry. They've shipped five times more cars into Russia in the last year than they did in any previous year in the last 10 years. So where you would have seen American and our, uh, British, or sorry, uh, you know, European cars mainly in, in Russia, now you see, you know, innumerable Chinese uh, cars. They're very good. They're very nice. All the taxis are now Chinese. So the Chinese pragmatism when it comes to commerce uh, is in full flight now in Russia. And Russia face on the earth huge military a nuclear power uh, you know a, a burgeoning power uh, has its back in the east and I think the, the friendship and relationship between China and Russia is now the best it has ever been and I think it's going to improve I think you will see more drills with Russia and China uh, working close uh, side by side I was at I've been in St. Petersburg. The job I'm doing is so great. I mean, I saw senior military personnel in St. Petersburg with their Russian counterparts. They're very friendly. They're very close. They're sharing a lot of information. I'm sure a lot of technology has been shared. 
as it is with Iran and other uh, partners with Russia or friendly countries, as they're called. So I really think uh, this disputed island in Amur is probably just a little geographical thing that some professor said, look, he's digging his heels in on. But I think anybody denying the, the reality of this Leviathan that's been created and created essentially by... Uh, all the ills between Russia and China, geopolitical, energy-wise, uh, you know, militarily, territorial disputes, have all been cured by one thing, and that's the catastrophic American foreign policy, which has led us to where we are today in Europe. Just a quick follow-up question on this. What does Moscow think about UK? Because that UK seems to be the biggest incitement, you know, agent in this entire war. I feel and this is just my personal opinion, even more so than the U.S. And U.K. is also one country that's equally despised by, I would think, Russia, China, and India. So just wondering, what's the thought in Moscow about U.K. and getting them to feel a certain amount of pain? I'm not sure how that would work out, but your thoughts would be welcome. Yeah, look, I think the, the view in Russia in Moscow, and I'd say among the political elite and the military elite is of, of Britain, is that it's, they're a little bit, uh, you know, what's the word? They're, they're an empire in decline. I mean, they've, they've lost their empire. They don't have an empire. They're not an empire in decline. The U.S. is an empire in, in decline. But Britain is seen as a pretty desperate, almost cringeworthy um, lapdog, really, of, of the United States, of Washington, of the, of the sort of neocon elite that's driving this... Uh, uh, you know, a kind of cultural war against Russia. The genuine uh, belief is that they don't have an army anymore. I mean, uh, the equivalent of the entire British army has been long destroyed in Ukraine, maybe three or four times over at this stage, if you believe many of the uh, casualty rates on Ukraine. So they, you know, they are essentially powerless they wouldn't be able to societally or militarily confront the Soviet Union, although some of these uh, senior NATO generals who are British very proudly suggest that they, we should prepare for war uh, with, with, this, with the Russians. I think this is all just this usual... Um, you know, think tank fantasy that, you know, the British could fight a war with anybody. They've, they've got no, again, heavy caliber artillery manufacturing capacity. Uh, most of the equipment that they've sent to Ukraine has been vaporized. You know, armored cars that were used in Northern Ireland in the 70s. It's, 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 it's kind of ridiculous. Their, their military is in, in significant decline. But they do have, uh, you know, a sort of a, the special relationship with the United States. But again, they've asserted some sovereignty, I suppose, by leaving the EU. But it's the Anglosphere that's really the engine of this war, <clears throat> excuse me, against Russia. And the Russians know, uh, and the Russians know that it's the Anglosphere that is the engine of this war. Uh, and they see the British as, you know, an, an insignificant but annoying um, sort of. Uh, adage or appendage to the American sort of uh, military-industrial industri military complex. That's how they're seen. So and they're seen with a little bit of disdain like and humor. Like a mosquito. Yeah, they're, they're not, they're not, they're not. I, I, I would suggest that the British aren't taken seriously as a influencing power anymore in Europe uh, by Russian, by the Russians. Of course, they are, uh, you know, a significant economy and, you know, they have a lot of banking expertise and, you know, I'm not writing off Britain. It's a, it's a great country in many ways and it's got some great people. But 
As regards the Russian attitude to Britain, it's a, one of a quaint... Um, made a fool of itself in uh, selling out its uh, sovereignty to its ex-colonial possession, uh, much like India embarrassed it recently when it landed the uh, lander on the moon. You know, uh, I mean, Britain is failing at most things it tries to do, and it has significant societal, economic, and internal political woes, and it's been led by theatrically stupid leaders in, in the last uh, three years which sort of bears out the sort of crisis within the country. So Russians really think that the British would be better set to try and deal with the delusional uh, political elite uh, who all come from a single school, uh, you know, than be, you know, trying to sabre rattle with the biggest nuclear power on earth. And uh, does Moscow really believe that it's the Ukrainians that could have carried out the Nord Stream attack? Because I find it implausible that SBS or somebody like that would not have been involved in at least the training and the planning of it. There, there's absolutely no uh, remote uh, belief that the Ukrainians had anything to do whatsoever with the Nord Stream attack, in my view, from talking to people who, who may or may not know. Uh, it's, it's, again, it's another source of great humour to suggest that some uh, Ukrainians in a sailing yacht sailed into the Baltic Sea, the most surveilled sea on Earth. Uh, with, you know, remember the Chinese have 300 satellites, most of them are capable of military surveillance. Uh, the British, the French, uh, the Americans uh, have a vast surveillance machine watching that part of the world. And to suggest that the Ukrainians sailed a yacht in there unbeknownst to anybody and went, you know, nearly a kilometre down to the seabed and did that kind of damage is like suggesting that your dog's going to wake up in the morning and fry you an egg. It's just absolutely ludicrous. And the Russians know that. Uh, and of course, the, the, the sort of the parody here is that, uh, and even Seymour Hirsch, you know, he, he his, his sort of landmark article where he very clearly outlined how this uh, was done, who it was done by, and what the excuse would be. What's most frightening, in my view, is that the political elites in Europe and in America uh, can even keep a straight face when they're trying to sort of relay this delusional narrative that Ukraine, you know, uh, you know, had had done this. That's that's what's frightening. I think anybody that could believe that, you know, needs uh, needs a good rest, in my view. Thank you so much. Love you, Sarah. Hi, Benjamin. How are you doing? I'll shut up now. Thank you so much, Shay. Shut up. This is a very open um, question and answer space. So stay on the panel. Go ahead, Ben. Uh, yeah, hey, Shay. I uh, hope you're well. Um, you know, I'm just wondering, sort of, you're inside the Moscow sort of information sphere. What is the general vibe regarding the situation in Nigeria and West Africa uh, within that sort of sphere that you're in? Hey, Ben. I hope you're good. Good to talk. Um, well, I mean, dare I say it, I think the the, the Russian view of this situation in Niger and in, in, in the entire African continent is that it's the sort of the dying embers of this uh, of colonialism. People talk about post-colonial Africa. I think we're still in post-colonial Africa because until Africa achieves fiscal independence, which it has never done and never been allowed to do, it's still a, a colonial possession of the World Bank and of the European Union to some degree. 
and to the, I think, a dozen or so companies that basically control all of the resources of the African continent. So I think what the Russian view is in sort of academia and in politics, and certainly the official view is that what's happened in Niger is being picked uh, by the West for this a la carte outrage immorality. The West, who has sponsored, you know, innumerable coups, the CIA, who, you know, uh, basically, you know, uh, does this stuff, uh, you know, for breakfast, uh, lunch and dinner. And then when a coup, which seems to have overthrown a genuinely despotic and useless leader... Uh, and is pro and the the incumbents now are seemingly pro-Russian and anti-French and anti-colonial, and you've got some quite dynamic people uh, heading these new this new wave of African nationalism, if you like, and pan-Africanism. These are all huge threats to a declining Western. A geopolitical hegemony. I mean, remember what Africa does for the West. It, 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 it's a battery for the West. It's a, uh, you know, it's a, it's, it's a good gamble because uh, conditions for workers are so poor. And a lot of money to be made in Africa still, in France. Uh, you know, and uh, post-colonial, you see the way Macron is behaving, uh, you know, saber-rattling, uh, you know, trying to pretend that he's interested in attending the Brixham and inviting himself to it. Uh, so I think what the Russians believe is this is yet another sort of demonstration of the panicked, sudden interest of the West, who are absolutely and, you know, irrefutably the architects of all of Africa's problems. You know, you say, oh, we've got to blame the Africans. They had plenty of opportunities to fix things. Well, you could say the same about Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, who have really not done much with their infrastructure of a magnificent country since the end of the Soviet Union, except screw uh, screw the country and the people for the uh, political elites, no matter which side of the political divide you were on. But it seems okay to launch a, a vast uh, trillion-dollar war uh, on the side of Ukraine, but you don't apply the same metric for corruption and endemic incompetence into Ukraine as you do into Africa by blaming the Africans for being unable to, um, what's the word, cultivate democracy in the way that they've apparently done in the West. And we all have a lot of questions about how democracy is cultivated in the West. So I think what Russia sees is they see, firstly, I think they see an opportunity. They see an opportunity through BRICS and they see an opportunity through uh, infrastructure projects, energy, food security, and what the Russians uh, are allowing the West to do is what Napoleon said very famously. He said, never interrupt your opponent when he's making a mistake. They're doing it in Ukraine. And in Africa, they'll probably get sucked into some sort of uh, post-colonial conflict there. I mean, through ECOWAS, this basic puppet uh, uh, mechanism to interfere in the internal uh, affairs of other countries in Africa. But I think ECOWAS will shrink. I think any military intervention backed by France or otherwise will fail. Uh, and I think it, it's it's not something that the West really has the energy uh, infrastructure or capability to get involved with now. And they've basically lost the race for Africa and they're losing the race for Africa. And they know that. So they will probably do some desperate and stupid things. I mean, just think about the, uh, you know, the intervention on the Suez Canal. It's quite considerably possible that they may do something very stupid uh, in, in order to cling to this uh, delusion that Africa needs the West. Without the dollar, which is the, in my view, the mechanism by which every country 
with uh, food supply problems, every country with a corruption problem, and every country with, uh, you know, a history of war, famine, and, uh, you know, uh, upset, if you like. Uh, the dollar, in my view, has been, in 98% of those cases, the fabric on which this sort of tapestry of dysfunction is laid. And as soon as the dollar loses that dominance, countries in Africa can begin to trade with each other in a more uh, dignified and uh, self-serving way. And it's about time Africa became a self-serving continent because it's been dominated by the most self-serving uh, continent on earth, uh, the United States and its vassals in Europe for, for several hundred years now. So it seems like there isn't a path to victory for ECOWAS. And I agree with basically everything you said. That being said, you know, they are there is a sense of desperation there. I know you're you're familiar with everything France relies on West Africa for. Um, so if ECOWAS did sort of push forward and try to have some sort of you know proxy war uh for France or at the behest of France, what level, if any, uh support do you see Russia giving to sort of this pan-Africanist block that we see in Mali, Burkina Faso, possibly Guinea and Niger. Yeah, I mean, look, I think, I think it's it's what may be a more interesting uh, scenario. Ben would be what kind of. Uh, uh, sort of military assistance could China and Russia give? I don't know if you recall the Balkan Wars when the Russians sort of intervened at Sarajevo airport and the whole world sort of stood still when Russian paratroopers made a race to the airport. I mean, can you imagine a sort of a China-Russia uh, military intervention force going to Africa as peacekeepers? I mean, I think the West understands that. I don't think it's... And possibly Iran as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, this is this is the 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 scenario that you could be faced with. I mean, if ECOWAS, uh, you know, can uh, be the proxy of of uh, France potentially and of Britain. Remember, Britain and France always coalesce in these sort of uh, situations a lot. You go back to the uh, you know the illegal overthrow of Mohammed Massadi in 1953-54 in Iran. It was the British and French and the Americans who were behind that. And that's another night's talk, I suppose, about the destabilizing the Middle East. But I think the West wants to avoid at all costs a military confrontation with France, with um, Russia and China on the continent of Africa, because I think they know that they could very uh, they could come out of it very badly. I mean, they're. Remember, there's still sand in the boots after the Afghanistan catastrophe and they went into Ukraine and that has turned into a, a mighty shit show now for the West. The political elites in NATO know it. The political elites in EU know it, and they certainly know it in Washington. I do not see a situation where they're going to try to open another front, if you like, even a covert one or a proxy one in Africa. I think they realise in the West that the African continent is essentially uh, lost to them to a great extent, but they will obviously now send in the boys uh, from Langley and they'll do a lot of, uh, you know, under the radar and behind the scenes tinkering and try to destabilise any new governments that come in. They're already there, uh, you know, to a large extent. 
And once the dollar is dominant, you know, it's a very valuable tool to destabilize governments. If you control a country's economy via this debt-based currency, you basically control their political uh, system as well. So unless BRICS, Russia, China, India, uh, and all the new members really want to sort of get on board with, with muscling up regarding financial aid into Africa, I think the CIA and the covert operations against these new governments will probably uh, still be a significant threat to any changes. But I don't see uh, Russia uh, dispatching troops into into uh, Africa. I don't see China doing it, unless they're asked by a particular government. And they've been asked in, in, in some countries in in. in uh, in South America as well, and, you know, you, you'd know all about that. So, you know, you see the potential for it, but I just don't see Russia or China being hungry for that, particularly not China, because China, you know, wants to do business. It doesn't want to uh, make war unless it's about China. I think they're certainly more than capable and willing to go to war over China, over Taiwan. Yeah, it doesn't seem like there will be boots on the ground for Russia and China or Iran, but perhaps some other form of, of supportive pushing comes to shove. Now, there are a lot of sort of terrorist insurgents, uh, you know, in Nigeria, Nigeria, Mali, Burkina Faso. Uh, and that is part of the reason why uh, Wagner PMC has had such a presence there. Now, with Prigozhin gone, there's been a lot of speculation that the situation isn't really going to change solely because the head of Wagner is no longer in service, as it were. But that's still leaves an opening for the United States to maybe start funding more of these sort of tafriki terrorist groups. Do you see that as uh, something that causes the Russian Federation any degree of concern? Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure it's a concern. I mean, I think, you know, anybody who's read and studied the sort of uh, the genome and the DNA of these groups you know, it's very, it's quite easy actually now to tra trace uh, at least a significant chunk of them to, uh, you know, the American deep state and the CIA certainly have assisted and helped some of these uh, groups. So I think, you know, you make a good point in that this is really all about the sort of economic and structural supports that the, the the global south and russia and the brics alliance basically can provide to these countries to stabilize them to try to limit the influence of uh, the this basically the cia and and their uh, proxies from destabilizing these countries because in instability there's reliance and the more unstable a country is economically the more reliant it is on radical political movements and those radical political movements are easily bought by uh, the deep state from the United States, Britain and the West to do their bidding. And they did it, of course, through Operation Condor. They've done it in, you know, in, they, they, this is what they do. To suggest they do it any differently now would be exceptionally naive. I mean, uh, you, you're you in South America, you, you know about Condor, this huge operation sponsored by, funded by the CIA to basically destabilize any left-leaning um, government in the region. You know, 30,000 people disappeared, innumerable people murdered, assa political assassination. This is the rule book. You know, they did it in, uh, they tried to do it in Belarus, they tried to do it in Georgia, they've done it in Ukraine with Maidan. But the problem is uh, the neighbours didn't like it in Ukraine. Uh, so the neighbour has come in now and busted uh, the nose of the guy who came in. So it's it's this is why it's got messy for them in Ukraine. But in Africa, um, it may be different. So you make a good point. But I think 
Um, this chess game that's always going on, 24 hours a day, under our noses, unseen to us, uh, this covert action that's always being played out by the United States everywhere, everywhere they look. I mean, this uh, facade and veneer of uh, democracy and freedom is utterly uh, ridiculous. I mean, all the time the United States is looking to manipulate uh, nascent uh, democracy. All the time they're looking to influence anybody who may warm towards the new uh, multipolarity that's emerging. And they do that through uh, any means possible. They will ally with any ally. They will get into bed with anybody, al-Shabaab, al-Qaeda, uh, Hamas. They will go anywhere. They will pay anybody. <laughs> Banderites in Ukraine, they will ignore swastikas, they will ignore, you know, uh, decades of uh, ill treatment, you know. So to suggest that it isn't happening is, is naive, and it is happening. But I think the key is that structure, infrastructure, ec economic aid, uh, and food aid and security should be the priority for China and, uh, uh, and Russia going forward, because it's very difficult to destabilize, uh, you know, emerging and strong economies because, uh, you know, there's less radicalism. But that's my view. Yeah, well said, well said. Now, recently there was a, speaking of Latin America, there was a Russian uh, cruise ship, a, a battleship stationed in uh, Nicaragua for a few days to commemorate the 33rd anniversary of uh, Nicaragua's naval uh, Navy. And so that ship is now heading to Venezuela. Uh, and, you know, Iran just signed a security deal with Bolivia. And so, you know, there are something like 45 African countries that have, um, or 54 African countries that have military agreements with, um, with Russia. So I'm wondering how you see the expansion of sort of, uh, you know, the Russian Federation's diplomatic relations alongside China and Iran uh, moving forward in the coming years? Well, uh, the thing I say is I don't think uh, Russia really needs to expand its influence. I mean, you, forget, you know, don't forget that the Soviet Union consisted of 15 different republics, the vast majority of which now rely essentially on Russia, which is at the center of that world still. The Russian Federation is, is, is a, a huge, uh, it's a continental landmass with the, the biggest natural resources on earth. And it's a developing uh, country, it's a developing economy. And now that uh, it's pivoted away from the West quite radically, all thanks to this catalyst of these uh, uh, this econo-cultural war that's been waged against it. Russia now is experiencing an internal business boom. It's absolutely booming here internally regarding the domestic building um, trade, uh, huge uh, consumer demand. And it's kind of in inoculated itself against international sanctions, which are all, you know, there's so many ways, there's so many borders into Russia with ex-Soviet states and friendly states. It's impossible to really stop Russia getting what it needs or its people. So I don't think Russia really needs to look for new or try to influence people into new military alliances. <clears throat> I do think what they're going to do and are doing with countries like China and partners in Iran 
is looking to focus again on this economic stability, building, uh, you know, out new pipelines, new trade routes, indemnifying themselves against this, uh, ever allowing the United States to put their foot on their throat again. And what Russia has done demonstrably is prove to other countries that, you know, uh, you, you can survive this thing. And uh, you see, America can only do this once to Russia. Uh, the EU can only do this once. They've no more options. They can't. Uh, impose any more sanctions. I mean, the United States is still buying huge amounts of uranium from from the uh, Russia. Uh, the basically the Indians are buying uh, all the crude oil, uh, you know, uh, and now selling it on to Europe and, and to the United States in some degree. So there's a degree of theatre to this. They certainly won't be able to do it to China should they come to blows with them uh, in a military way. So this is, as I said at the start, this is about. Uh, everybody's seeing what can be done, What, how far can we push the other side? And I think the, the West has shot its bolt uh, economically. I don't think it has a bolt to shoot anymore uh, militarily. So I think it really needs to do some serious considering. But I don't think Russia... Russia's not an aggressor. It's not an aggressive country. It's not an empire, despite this ludicrous uh, drivel you read in Western media. There's no desire to establish a Russian empire. There is a desire to protect Russia, Russia's borders, uh, its friends, its allies, and Russian speakers in countries where they may be subject to the same sort of brutal genocide that the people of Donbass and Luhansk were. But there's no it doesn't need is more it's just laughable. So I don't think Russia needs uh, new military alliances. It's got one with the, the with the Chinese. It's got uh, military alliances with Iran and various other countries. So I don't think it, the, the, the direction now is military per se. <clears throat> and I also think, uh, you know, as uh, the BRICS uh, alliance evolves and grows, people are looking now here and China to see how do we flesh this out? How do we put meat on the bones of this huge frame? How do we exploit the economic opportunities uh, that this presents? And I think that's probably the focus far more than militarily. And I think Russia has proven uh, in Ukraine, and, it's, and it has done, it's basically taken on the combined power of NATO and the economic power of uh, <clears throat> the EU and the United States in, 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 in duality, and it's still standing. And the Russian military is actually improving in quality and it's evolved and it's been very pragmatic in how it's conducted this war. It, it moves fast, you know, it, it learns, you know, it, 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 it moves slowly, but it learns fast, the Russian military, and they've proven that with, with how they're fighting this war, and that's the view here. So I think Russia has enough on its hands militarily now, where China has its back. So I think it's all about the focus now towards uh, um, economic security. Yeah. Yeah, I'm really glad you say it, said that. It seems like Russia gets a reputation of mostly, you know, the help it, it provides other countries is completely military or intelligence. And I, I don't think that's the case. And I hope we do see more of Russia's um, sort of economic power being extended to its allies. I wonder if maybe you can just list a few or even just one or two uh, examples of like what Russia could provide countries in the global south economically. And then we can go to the hand uh, north. Yeah, well, I mean, look, obviously Russia, 
Uh, you know, you don't you don't need to be an economics professor to understand that Russia, what Ru the potential Russia has, not only as a place to invest, but also energy. I mean, the vast reserves and resources of Russian energy are there. I mean, the the huge, um, you know, technological capabilities of Russia, the huge capability Russia has to absorb and help people with education. I mean, I, I've done a lot of work with the African communities here, and it's still a vastly important place for people to come to to get educated. The Russian education system, one of the best on earth. Uh, you know, and you say military alliances, training, technology. Russia operates a space program. You know, so, I mean, there are huge opportunities for any country that wants to partner and ally with Russia. And I think what Russia wants to do is uh, diversify. Also, Russia needs more workers. It needs uh, uh, it needs to modernize and build out elements of its economy, its infrastructure. Uh, and it's eager and happy to have people from other countries, uh, third world countries, emerging economies here to help us do that. I mean, I've met Indian engineers, Chinese people, Koreans, you know, you know, there's such a diversity of people here living and working uh, and they're very well treated and well paid and looked after. And I think Russia wants to work in partnership to develop its own internal uh, economy, but it also has a vast reserve of energy uh, and expertise to offer any partner going forward. So I think I think they're probably the main ones, Ben. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point. I know Nicaragua and Russia are in some sort of long-term discussions for eventually sometime in the future building, uh, you know, nuclear power plants. Um, and so I hope we do see more of that, especially in third world countries. That's such a great way to help foster some energy independence in the global south. Uh, now, Noor, you had your hand up, so let's move on to Noor. And then um, we can go to Al after that if there's any other People who want to ask Shay a question, he is an RT correspondent in Moscow and a highly informative. Nor you can go ahead. Hello. Hey, we can hear you. Hello. Oh, thank you for uh, giving me chance to I talk in. Um, this space. I am Noor Budanur from Afghanistan. And um, just I, I have uh, a question from uh, human rights and uh, why all world uh, forgot Afghanistan women's because uh, Afghanistan women don't have rights um they we cannot go out from home and um i was used to work at as civil activist for women's rights in various offices of of the former government i was working in different uh, organization but now i am uh, at home uh, um, i ask a lot of people uh, to help me, but uh, no one hear my voice. Uh, so just I was thought, I was think I should uh, speak on your space. Maybe I find someone to help me. What do you propose? Well, this space is about Russia. 
like we're we're talking to someone in Russia, so I don't really know what we can do to help in Afghanistan. Oh, okay. Can I say something um, to, to you, Noor? Can I say something to you, if I may? <clears throat> so, like, first thing is, I'm sure everybody here would be really, um, are very sorry to hear your situation, of course. And I'm just about Russia. I don't know how, you know, how it is in, in uh, I, well, I know how it is in, in Afghanistan. Of course, we all do here. Anybody who's from the West or lives in the West or in Russia, we understand that the situation in Afghanistan is very, really difficult for women. And difficult is probably a, uh, a minor way of putting it. But, for example, all of my bosses here are, uh, oh, she, Noor, you're still there, yeah. So, I mean, Russia is a very developed society regarding equality for women, in my view. I mean, all my bosses are female. Um, you know, since the Soviet times, women have been, you know, exceptionally re well respected. In many, many ways, it's a matriarchal society. But women are everywhere in the Russian workforce. They're everywhere. I mean, it is absolute parity, as far as I can see, in every respect. Now, someone may challenge me on that, but I, I really have seen remarkable um, balance uh, in gender here. It's just not something that's seen. It's utterly irrelevant if you're a male or a female here regarding work in every sphere. I mean, gosh, I mean, I've given some talks in universities, female professors, female train drivers, female builders. Women are everywhere in Russian society, and it's, that's how it should be, in my view. So <clears throat> I can't offer you any solution to the situation in Afghanistan, of course. Uh, I don't know who can. But I certainly don't support the oppression of women. And I don't think anybody here uh, does either. I mean, um, the, uh, so all, all I can do is, is offer my heartfelt sympathy for your situation and hope things improve. And I think it's utterly uh, foolish of any state or country to deny itself the brilliance of its female population. That's all I can say. Thank you so much for your sympathy, sir. Uh, just uh, everyone give me uh, sympathy. And uh, this is uh, uh, very sad for me because our country is in the hands of uh, terrorists, but America and also world, but whole world is silent. Uh, and uh, um, we don't have any uh, ch choice, just uh, we should destroy and uh, this is, um, I think, our bad chance. We are born in Afghanistan. We why I wish I wish I was not born in Afghanistan because sorry, we I just don't have a quick have question for you, Noor, if you don't mind. Um, are you, are you currently in Afghanistan having this conversation? Yes. 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 I am. I am in Afghanistan can now. In Kabul. I live in hiding place from. Right. We're gonna get. We're gonna get back to the topic, which is about Shay, being Irishman. Yeah. Yeah. In, in Russia, like I, I'm sorry, but it's not an Afghanistan space. Al, go ahead. Hey, Shay, so I've been hearing a couple of rumors, and since you're there, perhaps you could let me know if these are just rumors or is there some basis in it. The first one, something that Sarah and I kind of agreed on, is, is Sorobokin going to be reassigned to look after Africa? Number one. Number two, is there any truth to the rumors that if uh, you know Russia does start advancing after the counteroffensive has failed, and uh, Russia does reach Kiev, then Medvedchuk 
is the person of choice to be installed as the president of Ukraine. The third one, I've been told that Russia's already geared up for an SMO for up to three years. I mean, they've got the preparations, the stocks, the logistics, the operations, the mobilization plans, everything else. This is something that the West doesn't understand because that's a formidable thing to be prepared for. Uh, NATO won't last. Certainly, European Union economies won't last. So if this is true, that Russia's geared up for a minimum of three years, uh, I would really like you to shed a bit of light on it. And the fourth one, could you please tell Margaret Simonian to unblock me? I have no fucking clue why she blocked me. No idea whatsoever. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> well, you know. Um, so that's quite a question, right? I mean, and I can answer 80% of it very simply. And the answer to that is nobody knows the answer to who's going to head uh, any Russian uh, force or affiliated force in Africa. Nobody knows who's going, wh which direction the uh, military operation or the war, the invasion, whichever you like to call it, is going to go. The only people that know that uh, are about, you know, two kilometers probably away from me right now in the Kremlin. So I would imagine. And I, I think any speculation on that basis is just speculation. But I think we can still discuss it on the base. But I've got, I've got to say, I have no idea. Uh, and Surovikin uh, is a very interesting guy. Um, I think the Western media loves to sort of say, as soon as uh, a Russian general leaves a post or is moved sideways up or down, it's, you know, this drama in the Telegraph and the Washington Post, chaos. I mean, I, I just don't see it as chaos. I see it as pragmatism. Um, you know, they're starting to accept now that the Russian withdrawal from Kherson, uh, rather than get a whole army encircled and cut off, it's, it would have been a very Ukrainian thing to do. The Russians came across the river in good order, took all their equipment, manpower, men, uh, to a man, and withdrew across the river and established a defensive line, which the Ukrainians have not been able to breach. So, I mean, Russian pragmatism will always be portrayed in the West Russian uh, stupidity. That's just propaganda. Um, and the idea that sort of Vikin is going to be uh, moved to Africa, uh, I don't know. I mean, Surovikin is an Air Force guy. He's an air attack and logistics type of guy. Uh, so I don't know. Would he have any specific uh, expertise in, in Africa? I don't know. Uh, it could happen. <clears throat> but uh, I, I'm unsure. Um, so, I mean, that's the first element of the question. And sorry, uh, Dee Dee, do you want to say something? No, I'm waiting till you're done. You're fine. Go ahead. Yeah, so the second uh, element to the question was about logistics, I think, and three years. I think Russia can fight for a lot longer than three years, actually. you got to understand, there's now at this stage, there's about two million people working in Russia's uh, military-industrial complex. There are entire cities uh, in this country which were built and are now operating as huge magazines to produce uh, weapons, artillery shells, uh, Tula, uh, you know, uh, being won, uh, a vast uh, ammunition-making factory, okay? Uh, and what the sort of Western analysts and armchair experts uh, and think tank sort of mafia would like to tell you is that, you know, Russia's running out. We all, well, I don't think we should even talk about the Russia's running out fantasy 
Uh, Russia's not running out. Russia's actually uh, eagerly scaling up its its military industrial complex. It's looking to employ a lot more people. Unemployment in Russia now is just uh, just about to go under three percent. Um, you know, so I think this ideology that you know Russia was a gas station with weapons uh, was was a. Uh, idiotic. I think the idea that Russia is running out of anything is idiotic as well. Russia is the only country that could close its borders entirely and still have every natural resource it needed for a hundred years. Forget about three. And this idea about Russia and its GDP. So, you know, Russia's got a, an economy the size of California. Well, California makes iPhones, vibrators and uh, gay rights flags. I don't know what it makes, okay? But Russia makes tanks, uh, uh, ballistic missiles, uh, rockets that can send satellites to the moon, and it makes fucking hundreds of thousands of artillery shells a month. And, you know, a single Russian factory can make more artillery shells than the entire manufacturing capacity of the United uh, the European Union. And this is what the sort of Blue Hair Brigade in the EU and in the United States refuse to accept that the whole Russian ideology, it's an artillery doctrine of the Russian army. The, the Russians have been preparing for a war with the West basically since uh, the end of the Second World War. And it was Joe Stalin said it. He said they're thirsty for another war. And the whole Russian manufacturing, logistics, the railroads, and the ideology in Russia is that, you know, the only way to win a war is dig deep trenches and have overwhelming artillery superiority. And guess what? They were right, because the Russian artillery doctrine has completely destroyed the Ukrainian army. It's destroyed the uh, NATO equipment that's been sent to support this proxy army. And the West just doesn't like the idea of being wrong. And, but they're begrudgingly accepting it now. But they will all they will keep trying to say, you know, that Russia has a, a diminished manufacturing capability, which has just been proven wrong again and again, if anything. The Russian military industrial complex has saved the economy here from the impacts of Western sanctions by this huge uh, uh, indigenous growth. <clears throat> so, in some ways, it's the, uh, the 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 poison has become the medicine for the Russian economy. It certainly has done for the Russian military, which now has an exceptionally vast budget, uh, limitless budget, and of course, Russia is still developing significant weapons. Don't forget the Russians. Last year, launched the Belgorod submarine. It's it, it, entirely silent, the biggest submarine on Earth, which carries like a Sarmat missile that could vaporize any any uh, city on Earth. And there just would be no time to, to even detect it. The Americans know that. Uh, they, they, they widely talk about it. So there's a huge expertise here in the military-industrial complex for development. Russia's winning the war on electronic warfare here. The development of things like the Lancet, which is evolving into a really, really high-powered and powerful weapon, the Pantsir systems. So I don't want to get too into the military uh, stuff because I'm a bit of a geek on that stuff. But, you know, the, the, the difference between Russia and America and the EU is Russia makes makes all the – can mill the steel, it can mine the uranium – it can uh, it can forge the tracks. It can cast the wheels. It can make the ammunition, and it can do it all within its own borders. There's no country on earth that can do that now, uh, in my view, to the, to the scale that is required to to fight this war for long term.
Jay, I, I, I think this is, I, I'm sorry for jumping right ahead and, and kind of putting my question out to you, but this is kind of the reason why I'm here today is because- Can you wait? We have hands and I'm, I've been waiting to speak. Oh, Roger that. I mean, I, I just wanted to put out a quick thing about yeah, nuclear can you, warfare. Can you mute yourself and put your hand up, please? We have- like, how, do I, how do I do that? Um, I'll mute you and you could put your hand up using the emojis in the bottom right of your phone. Roger. Um, okay, from the audience, I, uh, since the West doesn't respect any rules or international rules and has imposed so many sanctions, has Russia suspended, canceled, suspended or canceled specific rules and agreements with the West, or are they continuing certain agreements signed prior to the SMO? Yeah, I think uh, Russia has suspended several agreements uh, with the West on financial cooperation uh interpol i think they've suspended agreements with them they've definitely sort of uh, i think russia and america have both withdrawn from uh, ballistic missile treaties uh as well so i think the west has the west has also or russia has uh, seized some assets it's passed some laws to say that if you want to pull out of russia as a com as a company you know we're basically you know you got to leave your gear here so there russia has been quite uh what's the word aggressive in that and in my view i think they're entirely justified in doing that uh so i think yes they have is the answer to that just want to add they also withdrew from inf treaty that was about a couple of months ago sarah okay and we'll go to a one gin and then david um we'll just make a note that david <laughs> figure out how to put his hand up so go ahead one gin, david okay uh thanks thanks tv so che yeah thanks for uh, the space and uh, i appreciate your work uh, i was born in uh, st petersburg in the late 70s and uh, now in, i'm in the u.s and i worked in moscow as well for some time while being you were born in you were born in leningrad correct and i, I say that often but most people um, they automatically go to St. Petersburg, so I just I just stick to that. So thank you for correcting me on that. Yeah, uh, so I just wanted to, um, and by the way, Tula ammo is sold in the United States. I have 9mm ammo, which I bought during the 2020 riots, but because ammo went up in price. So I want to say, and they're still sold in the United States, so you can sort of imagine how much ammo Russia produces. Anyway, um, I wanted to get your sense on the um, the sentiment in Russia, you know, how people are sort of whether the sentiment not only towards what's happening, but generally, is it more patriotic? <clears throat> Have you seen a change? Have, um, are there volunteers? Obviously, I understand there are about 20,000 at least signing up on a monthly basis to go to the <clears throat> front line. Is do you did you notice any change in the general sentiment? Is there was there an increase in patriotism, maybe more volunteer work? How does Russia and Russians in general, how do they um, take or how do they evolve with the evolving situation, so to say? Thank you. Yeah, that's a really good question. Uh, I think my view is so. That the, I think about this quite a bit, and if you know people ask me, and people do from the West, they say, "Well, what, you know, what do people think about the war?" I say, I'd say the first thing is there's only one people on Earth who probably know war uh, as well as Russians do. Uh, after losing 27 million people, well, 60% of those were Russians that died in the Great Patriotic Wars. It's known here. 
So the Russian people know war, they know hardship, they know revolution, they know famine, they know invasion. So they're really, really, they have the badges to have an opinion on war. That's the first thing I'd say to you. And they are, you know, there's not a single uh, Russian or Ukrainian family probably who hasn't been touched by war, particularly the Great Patriotic War. So that's the first thing I'd say. So my view, if you want sort of numbers, I would say that 30% of the population in Russia here, okay, are against the war. They don't. They think the war is wrong. They think it's Russia's fault. They think it's uh, you know a a bad thing that it's uh, you know they're. So I'd say about thirty percent. I'd say seventy percent uh, accept that the war is necessary or support the war. Uh, so I would say you know the core of that is people who accept who you know Russians more accept the war as necessary. They understand the reality of where this war was created, how it began. They know what was happening in Donbass, Donetsk. They know what happened in Georgia with Saakashvili. You know, they know what happened in, uh, you know, uh, in Belarus, in Maidan. So you got to understand the average Russian, okay, is far better versed in what's happening in the world and in their own country. And their default is skepticism. They're skeptical of their own government. They're skeptical of the US, EU, everybody. But if you ask me to make make out numbers, I'd say about 30% would say, look, I'm against the war. And I, I meet people regularly, taxi drivers, people in shops and bars, people in restaurants. I talk to everybody. It's my job. And people say, I'm against the war. I'm, I, I, I think it should end. I think we should come out, pull out. And then the, the majority, which is a significant majority, say, you know, we nobody wants this war, but there was no option for Russia. We, we've been you know, warning about the situation, the West get pushing us, that NATO, da 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 da. So I would say they're the numbers, and that's as honest an appraisal I can give you. Has it changed? I think it's interesting. That's a really interesting question. Since I came here, I first came here a year ago in August, right in the middle of, you know, when the house was on fire, essentially, I ran into it because I wanted to do that to find out what was happening and to, to do what I thought was important work telling people what was happening here. And since I've been here, I think people have definitely become more confident in a, a victory that, a, that the Russians can win this war. And I think more recently, people have seen uh, the Western media begrudgingly accept that they're losing the war in Ukraine, uh, that Ukraine is a corrupt country. But everyone here knew that anyway, because you've got to remember there are literally millions of Ukrainians and there's hardly a, a family here that doesn't have some Ukrainian relatives or the mixed marriages. So this idea of Ukrainian-Russian culture being two distinct things, again, is another absolute fantasy. Uh, peddled by the West, you know, by the nationalists in, in Western Ukraine as well, no doubt. So I think people here accept uh, that the war uh, had to be fought, if we're talking about a majority. I think definitely uh, in big cities like Moscow and St. Petersburg, uh, I was surprised in St. Petersburg actually with the level of support for the military operation, as they call it, or the war. Uh, I was expecting it to be a bit more liberal when I've been there. I've been there four times now in the last number of months for various things. And, you know, I've been impressed and surprised by the level of support. And I would say that support for a resolution that uh, Russian kids don't have to go and fight this war again in uh, 20 years' time. Uh, I think that's the sense now that this has to be finished. I don't think the Russian people uh, will support a detente with 
the West. They don't trust the West now at all. And uh, they suggest to me that, you know, this has to be finished and we will finish it. Our grandfathers finished the Germans. Their grandfathers finished Napoleon. You know, yeah. we're going we're gonna to finish this war so that to prevent our kids fighting it. Nobody here uh, celebrates the war as, you know, uh, a positive thing in that, you know, the killing of Ukrainians or anything like that. That's uniquely, in my view, the reserve of Ukrainian nationalism. You don't see that here. Nobody here hates the West. Nobody here actually hates the United States or hates the British. I mean, I just have not come across that. If they, if they, if they do, I just haven't experienced it. Um, so I think that's the reserve and the preserve, really, of trying to dehumanise Russians from the other side. I, I just don't see uh, Russian, ordinary Russian people harbouring that type of hatred towards anybody. If anything, they're, they're utterly amazed and surprised at the ignorance in the West and how gullible they've been in being led into this uh, um, disastrous situation by NATO and the West. Uh, go ahead, David. Sorry about that earlier. But the hand is all the way to the right in the emojis. I was trying to push the, the hand and it wasn't working for me, but I'll, I'll hop right on it. I, yeah, you know, I appreciate this dialogue because my first time kind of coming across RT was my, my own research, trying to find out what are the casualties for Ukrainians as well as Russians, because in, in some ways, unfortunately, that is the scoreboard, right? For how many casualties are on the battlefield. But Colonel McGregor is saying 400,000 Ukrainians have perished and to me, that is that is just jaw-dropping as an American because during the entire World War II, you only had around 291,000 American soldiers that died during the entire conflict. And so, so to see that type of number, it makes me really worried about nuclear war, especially given that I've been reading more on RT. I've also been looking at different Telegram channels, and the information that I'm hearing here is very similar to what I'm learning through those channels and methods. But... I'm really worried that Americans are not getting the real view, the real vantage point, as Che just said, about how Russians don't have any hatred or any type of indoctrinated uh, desire to go and murder Americans. But in America, it's the complete opposite. And I think my fear really gears around nuclear war. And I was lucky enough to go to Japan last year for a business trip uh, anniversary of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And I think as an American, it was one of the worst and amazing times of my life because I wore a small backpack that had an American flag the entire time as I toured around. Not one Japanese person came and attacked me, but it was heavy. I don't think many Americans truly understand how devastating nuclear war is. And it's not just a bomb blast. It's a, an incineration, such as a big sun that pops out of the blue and everyone's getting burned to death. And I think what I'm learning on RT is helping me understand what's happening across the world because big tech, the censorship is insane. It is absolutely insane. And I wonder what can RT do, Che, especially you, how can you get your message to America about Russia, about the current events. And most importantly, we do need a scoreboard about how many Ukrainians and Russians have died, because in my opinion, hearing Colonel McGregor through RT, that was enough. And he was on Tucker Carlson as well. So I think there is a big censorship. And while I agree with everything that's being stated here, I think most Americans do not have the opportunity to hear this side of the story. So how can 
this come to our borders to prevent nuclear war? Because I think the narrative is changing. I'm seeing different news articles, but that is what worries me, because if they were so galvanized upon pushing a certain narrative, a fake facade, and now that's crumbling, that makes me really worry that the United States might decide to do another, I don't know how to say it, but a, uh, a planted attack. And with nuclear weaponry today, it's we're looking at annihilation. So it's, that's it's really it's a really, point. really good question. You know, and strangely, I'm actually in the middle of writing an article about this that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm writing an op-ed actually for for RT and in it, you know, and I, I just published one about this F-16 fantasy on the RT website. If anyone wants to look at it, go ahead. Shameless plug. But uh, this one I'm writing is about that the, the most dangerous time in some ways in this conflict will be when the sort of suits in Washington and London realize that, you know, this only ends one way. And what could they do next to sort of snap a victory from the jaws of defeat? And, you know, this is a dangerous time. But the good news is, from my point of view, is that nuclear war is exceptionally unlikely because there's too many middle-aged white men uh, who stand to lose too much uh, money, their girlfriend, their place in Florida, uh, their uh, dividend from their Raytheon stocks, you know, and their golf outings. Nobody wants to face that uh, incinerator that you just very uh, eloquently described, David, in my view. Nobody. It, could it happen? Of course it could. Anything can happen. But is it likely that uh, a... A political elite who, who've, you know, essentially greased the palms of, of each other with uh, this perpetual war are going to, you know, unplug the slot machine that they have rigged. This is the analogy I'd like to use. Are they going to unplug that slot machine? For what? Why? Why would they? All they need to do is stoke the fear narrative. All they need to do is shift or pivot from Russia to Ukraine or to China. China is the enemy. We were super sorry. We just punched Russia in the nose. They punched us back. All's well. Let's try and pull Russia away from China. Let's try and leverage that uh, great uh, resource strength that we tried to steal from Russia by dismembering it and decapitating it. The first time we tried to do it was in Operation Unthinkable after the first our Second World War, when the British and Americans actually thought about dropping 12 nuclear weapons on the biggest uh, cities in the USSR right at the end of the war, as soon as the the Soviets had basically destroyed the fighting power of the Wehrmacht, they actually contemplated uh, nuking uh, the Soviet Union. And it was called Operation Unthinkable for that reason, because the British officers who saw the American plan thought it was so unthinkable, they called it Operation Unthinkable. But it exists, and I'd suggest anybody listening go and seek it out, Operation Unthinkable. So the idea that the West would contemplate uh, doing something remarkably drastic to its to 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 the to the Russians is not un, is not it's not unthinkable it is thinkable but now given the connected nature of the global economy given the 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 fact that this fear this engine of fear and suspicion and hatred racial it started with the American Indians for the Americans, for the white Americans. It moved on to the black Africans who got emancipated. It went from there to the uh, communist Vietnamese. From there, it kind of bounced around a bit until it landed with the Arabs. And then it was all along the Russians. Russians became okay again. Russians bad again. And now it's the Chinese, okay? So this roulette wheel that constantly throws off huge amounts of profit for a vast military industrial complex in the United States of America 
which is the same military industrial complex, which has this grubby nexus with the political lead in Washington. It's all fueled by fear and war, occasional war, but constant fear. So I don't see the same people who profit so vastly from that uh, unplugging that slot machine. I just don't think it's going to happen unless it happens by accident. Would Ukraine or radical Ukrainians do something uh, radically uh, terrifying if they had the facility to do it? I think they possibly could. I think they possibly could and would if they got the opportunity to, but I think the lid's being kept on them by their handlers and the CIA and MI, MI5, MI6. MI6, excuse me. So I don't think we're going to have that nuclear war. And I understand why you're terrified. And I understand that we're in a really dangerous place right now. We're in this vacuum. The other, the other analogy is, you know, you've got this guy. He, this is the United States, you know, the world policeman, big dude. You know, he's been throwing his weight around the town for years. But he's getting a bit old. The knees are getting a bit dodgy. He's got a bit of a beer gut now. And the kids he used to kick the shit out of in the school ground have all got together and they're... They're, you know, they're thinking of heading down to that bar and seeing that old dude. And now may be the time, as he's getting the crap dusted out of him in the corner, that he might reach into his pocket and pull out a revolver and start taking pot shots at people. That's the other analogy, that desperate times call for desperate measures. But I also hope that people like uh, Doug McGregor, who I think is an exceptionally intelligent man, and his likes, I think even Mark uh, Milley, uh, who I've read a lot of his writing, even about my article about the F-16s, Amelie said this is never going to win the war for Ukraine. Uh, they're too ex- they're, they're, they're exceptionally uh, expensive. And it's in my article again on the F-16. I'm not going to go on about it here, but Amelie poured cold water on this. It's not going to win the war for Ukraine. He also said that Russia has like a thousand uh, third and fourth generation fighters that can shoot down the F-16 before it even leaves the tarmac in Ukraine. So there are smart, lucid uh, men in the administration or advising the administration. Remember, Doug McGregor was an advisor to Trump. And hopefully, if a delusional order to do something really stupid filtered out of the political numbskulls into the military uh, machinery, they would step in and say, look, this is just insanity. Uh, So I don't think it's going to happen. It could happen. But uh, hopefully, for all our sakes, it doesn't. Well, I'll, all I can say is I applaud your reporting and I'll stay tuned. Thank you very much. Thank you, David. Go ahead, Ben. Hey again, Shay. So, you know, when you and I, when I was in Moscow and I spent a little time with you, um, there were there was a drone attack on uh, a building in Moscow. And since then, it seems to be something that happens more and more frequently, yet the... Uh, response from the Kremlin is always pretty proportional. And so I'm wondering, has the uh, awareness of these drone attacks increased in Moscow? And is there a point where, you know, the Kremlin will say we've had enough and we're not going to take this anymore and do something more drastic in response? Yeah, that's an interesting one, Ben. Yeah, and I've covered a few of these attacks. I've been been in the buildings I, I was actually the last one I actually heard it being shot down which is uh, interesting but look here's my view on these drone attacks I think they are really a measure of how desperate Ukraine has come these are very expensive pieces of equipment just to get a bit geeky these are very capable machines 
uh, that could be deployed very uh, lucidly on a front line if you were winning. But what's the point? What Ukraine is trying to do and trying really desperately is to try to influence public opinion and also give a headline to its deluded client media in the West. So remember, if Kiev sends a drone, so what Kiev has done, let's talk about what they've done with these drones. I think there's been about 11 of them have uh, you know, been shot down. None of them have struck a target in Moscow. They've all been shot down or brought down by electronic means. They've broken some windows. So here's the, here's the, the truth versus the narrative. The narrative in the Western media, the Telegraph, the Times, the Economist, is uh, Ukraine is deploying, is sending the war back to Moscow. Okay, yeah, Reality number one. What Ukraine has done is broken some windows, okay? That's all they've done. They've broken some windows. Uh, they will have absolutely zero impact on the psyche, psychology, uh, or, or the direction of this uh, conflict. Zero. 90% of people in Moscow don't even know these attacks have taken place. This is a city of 23 million people. So people got to get their heads around the scale. 23 million people in a country of 150 million people and four or five broken windows is not going to deter or influence a people who lost 27 million defeating the greatest army that ever was put on the field by Adolf Hitler. It's just a delusion. Uh, it, we're not in the same Soviet Union as we were in those days, of course, but these are tough people. Okay, they're very, very tough. Okay, the only thing this may do, in my view, if it, uh, God forbid, injures or kills civilians, the only thing it may do is steal people against Zelensky. Because people here do not have a sort of a, a, an embedded hatred for Ukraine. They certainly, they see this conflict in many ways as a, uh, you know, to simplify it to a great extent, as a kind of a family row between this uh, long lost brother or cousin, they see these uh, the Ukrainians as their own people. They see them as they see it as a separate state. This is a delusion that the Russians don't think Ukraine exists is another fallacy. They do agree that Ukraine exists and has existed and will exist, but they don't see this as a war. Uh, a race war against Ukrainians. They see it as the Ukrainians becoming very eager proxies to a, a delusional promise of EU and NATO membership, which is never going to occur. So these drone attacks, which I've seen and I've uh, heard and I've reported on and been right up close to them, uh, will have zero an utterly ridiculous uh, sort of echo chamber signaling from Kiev to London. Oh, look what we can do. And by the way, all of these drones are being guided onto their, uh, onto their flight paths by NATO, uh, and British Intel and US satellites. It's impossible that Ukraine could do that stuff on, on their own. But think about this. This is in a military way. This is also interesting. Every time one of these drones comes to Moscow, and remember, all of them have been defeated. Every one of them has been defeated. Every time a drone comes, it inoculates the air defense system around Moscow more. Every time one is shot down, it's another gap that's closed. It's another... Um, yeah, stress test for the system. So in many ways, it's strengthening the air defense system, but it's also NATO uh, probing with this uh, Ukrainian delusion uh, to see what Moscow can do. And I mean, the people here are used to this. Life is utterly unchanged because of these uh, uh, pinprick, you know, delusion attacks, utterly, utterly unchanged. Now, I've been in Voronezh where they've blown holes in buildings. I've done reports from there. I've been in Belgrade where they've killed people. 
And of course, it's a different, uh, a different world there because this is a frontline cities, basically. But regards to Moscow, if anyone is deluded enough to think that breaking some windows in empty office blocks by accident after they're brought down by electronic means or shot down by the Pansy or, or tour systems or whatever, thinks that's going to change the direction of this war, they are absolutely delusional and willfully so. Thank you, Shane. Well said. Go ahead, um, on, on Goban. Uh, good evening, uh, Shay and everyone. Um, I'm just wondering, Shay, on, on probably on a more personal uh, thing for you, uh, being an Irishman in Moscow, how do you deal with some of the more cringy statements from Baragter and Coveley regarding Irish neutrality and, you know, try to be seen to be the best boys in the class, uh, you know, the obsequiousness to, you know, like they're they're a non-aligned nation, and yet they're they they want to keep putting their their little head up above the parapet. You know, saying we're with Ukraine, even though we're supposedly military non-aligned. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I was having a great time till you mentioned those couple of names. Um, <laughs> Sorry about that. Look, I mean, I suppose for the non-Irish listeners and people who, you know, aren't from Ireland, the vast majority of the planet, which isn't, thank God, okay? Um, these, I don't think these type of politicians are, are different in any small, essentially geostrategically irrelevant country, which Ireland is. It's geostrategically irrelevant. Um, so in geostrategically irrelevant countries, the politicians have more time to spend fucking up the lives of their population. And that's certainly been the case in Ireland. People like Varadkar are career failures, you know, utterly useless, presiding over a decaying society, basically, terrible health system, no housing, no health care. So when an opportunity to put on a, a Star Wars costume comes, they don't want to be Darth Vader, they want to be a Jedi. They want to pretend they're the good guys, and they look around and say, who does everyone else say the good guys are? And of course, NATO and, uh, you know, the, the Western Europe all say, oh, Russia's the bad guy. Uh, Putin's Darth Vader. You know, we're the Ewoks. So let's all get on board, stick the blue and uh, yellow flag on and go and, uh, you know, fight the good fight. Two reasons why we want to do that. Uh, you know, you've got to be utterly hollowed out morally to preside over a country that can allow the type of catastrophic dysfunction that Leo Varadkar and Michal Martin have allowed over decades in our country to persist and prevail to the point where you've got thousands of Irish kids, homeless, a million people waiting for healthcare in a tiny population. It's the same in Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia and the smaller uh, ex-Baltic uh, uh, states, ex-Soviet states. It's all... Uh, Russia's fault still. It's all Russia's fault still in Ukraine, even though they hadn't built any real major infrastructure projects and basically, uh, you know, uh, failed in a country that has probably the best agricultural and uh, uh, geography uh, on earth, some of it. So it's always going to be someone else's fault. And the chance to be uh, the good guy is irresistible to these uh, cringeworthy politicians. People like Billy Kelleher, who, you know, and uh, Timmy Dooley couldn't get elected, appointed to the Senate. And then they find themselves in Ukraine uh, hugging a man who has no political uh, knowledge, doesn't even know his own country's history, pretends to be Jewish when it suits him, uh, pretends to be a president, uh, you know, insanely corrupt 
uh, happy to prostitute himself to the West. I heard him today saying that we I'll, I'll hold elections if you give me five billion dollars. He actually said that. And uh, I mean, so these guys will coalesce together. There's a sort of magnetism among human uh, detritus, and these guys tend to stick together voluntarily. But I'm interested to see how it all comes apart now as this thing falls apart. Uh, you can't fool all the people all of the time, uh, as a famous uh, Russian one, one said. And it's going to become more and more difficult for them to uh, peddle this narrative that Russia is the bad guy, as the reality about this war comes out, as the reality about, uh, you know, the delusional, uh, uh, you know, uh, Ukrainian refugee scenario in Ireland. I mean, I'm a fan of all refugees. I think they should all be welcome in every fair society. Regardless of their colour, race, religion, I think anyone fleeing a war and it, uh, should be accepted, protected and given all uh, assistance possible. But I don't think it should be done at the expense of the indigenous people who have been neglected. I think everybody uh, within the state should be protected by that state. Priority shouldn't be given to people because they're blonde, blue eyed, good looking uh, or uh, uh, the, um, the political masters of the day say you better help these guys through this delusional uh, protection order thing from the EU. Ireland feels very comfortable uh, ignoring EU law when it comes to emissions, when it comes to uh, agriculture, when it comes to uh, VRT on importing cars. But they seem to say that it's absolute that we must take as many Ukrainians as, as we're told to take, even though they're taking more than uh, France uh, and other huge countries in the United States, actually, in real terms. So this enthusiastic rush to rally around the flag of another country while utterly allowing your own flag to drop into a shitstorm of dysfunction and, in my view, criminal negligence, uh, to me, just uh, shows what kind of people these men are. And from my point of view in Ireland, the more unpopular I am in Ireland with these uh, flag-waving uh, sort of morally illiterate people the the better a job I'm doing in my view I really don't feel any desire to be popular in Ireland when the uh, ruling class there is utterly corrupt in my view utterly corrupt and I know that for a fact I mean I've sat around the table with these guys I've got a a, a, a personal and distinct knowledge of how business is done in that country and it is that isolated uh, sort of political inbreeding uh, in Ireland that has really uh, putrefied the country and turned it into a really uh, fertile ground for this uh, ad uh, adoption of another country's nationalism, which I think is quite remarkable. Thanks. Thank you. Go ahead, um, Eric, and then Guta. Thank you very much. Jay, I will bring your attention to another country because everybody's been talking about Ukraine for Russia, Taiwan for China. But a lot of people have either forgotten or not paying too much attention to the country in between the two, which is Kazakhstan. Uh, you will remember that just before the Ukraine war, there was an unrest in Kazakhstan, uh, which was called down. And my question to you is, what is the chatter right now in Russia about Kazakhstan? How are they considering it? Uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think Baikonur is still where the Russians are sending their satellites, or do they have uh, in the past to get another site to launch satellites. Uh, what is all the discussion around that country? 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. Of course, Kazakhstan, a vast ex-Soviet uh, republic, huge uh, wealth. Um, it has a lot of uh, political instability. It's ha- it has had. Uh, there's a large ethnic Kazakh population living in Russia. And likewise, there's a lot of uh, Russians living in Kazakhstan. Just on your point about um, uh, the launch of satellites, I actually was in uh, in. Uh, uh, in in the Russian Far East at the launch of its Luna 25 in Vostochny. And the Vostochny Cosmodrome was built exclusively uh, to avoid reliance on a space uh, launch program which is based in another country. So that's really interesting. So the Russians have basically uh, developed the entire um, Vostochny uh, complex, which is insanely big i mean i can publish a couple of videos i did while i was there it's just insanely vast and of of course they're building out even bigger launch uh, facilities now for ever ever heavier uh, payloads to go into space so uh, russia is aware of that and it has uh, i think since 2015 uh, being actively switching its launches into uh, Vostochny, which is a, com- a purely commercial cosmodrome. I think they're still launching military and uh, satellites out of Baikonur. And it's that f- infrastructure between the two countries. Also, you've got a huge transit now of goods through Kazakhstan into Russia, uh, which are essentially uh, deploying a lot of the sanctions which uh, are supposed to isolate Russia. So there is a resurgent sort of nationalism in, in, in Kazakhstan as well. And Kazakhs are very proud people. Uh, they have made statements that they would like to move uh, closer to the West. Moscow has said, you know, well, you know, you've got a lot of trade with us. We have a lot of historical ties, an ex-Soviet republic, blah, blah. I think the conflict in Ukraine as well has to a significant uh, sort of um, degree made everybody sort of look at really where they want to move to now. You know, now that Russia has kind of, I suppose, acted on, uh, you know, a decades-long warning to the West that if NATO encroachment isn't uh, rode in, if it isn't, uh, you know, uh, tempered, that we would be forced to act. And I read that there's a lot of talk now that, you know, worrying about Russia's red lines is stopping the West helping Ukraine as much as, as, much as it should. It was ignoring Russia's red lines that led to this uh, military intervention in Ukraine, in my view. So this is just another Western delusion about Russia, taken in a vacuum without integrating or looking at the intrinsic realities of Russia. So I think Kazakhstan now sees a huge amount of economic opportunity with Russia, and that in some ways has de-escalated uh, any sort of potentially escalating uh, heat between the two countries. That's my view right now. And it's interesting how this conflict in Ukraine has influenced so many very uh, distinct and diverse relationships between the old Soviet republics. Really, really interesting. Thank you very much. And one last uh, follow-up on that. Anything about Tajikistan and Kyrgyzstan or nothing special? Well, I don't know a huge amount about, about Tajikistan and Kurdistan. I spent some time in uh, Tatarstan. I was in Kazan for a big economic forum, and I met several representatives from those countries. And again, it's 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 interesting to see how this uh, really 
beautiful, rich tapestry. I mean, Tatarstan is seen by Russia as the Islamic, you know, uh, Kazan is seen as the Islamic capital of Russia. I mean, I was in uh, Kazan and in the Kremlin, and the Kremlin is not the, just the Moscow Kremlin. You've got this beautiful Kremlin, which means fortress in Russian, in the center of Kazan. And right beside each other, you've got this beautifully ornate uh, Orthodox Russian church and a magnificent uh, mosque. And they sit right beside each other. And you do see that in, in some of the Russian republics as well. So it's a real education to see this acceptance and mutuality, uh, you know, in Russia. It's just not something I've seen in the West. And as far as I'm concerned, those smaller republics are smaller influentially or geostrategically, uh, again, now are getting drawn into uh, what are our opportunities now with Russia. Suddenly, small countries that bordered Russia, who were potentially irrelevant in some ways, to use a, maybe an unkind term, economically, are becoming potentially very relevant, very important as smaller partners as this new multipolar world emerges. So that's the only thing I'd say about those two places. Thank you very much. Go ahead, Guta. I know you wanted to ask a lot about BRICS and Ireland and stuff. Go ahead. Oh, yeah, but I was not wanting to divert. I was hoping like to be the last, but um, yeah, was um, yeah. I'm I'm here in Dumb in Dublin, and um, I have a few points. And uh, one you already met, spoke about, uh, which was Ireland helping Ukraine and all that the scenario. But uh, I have a few questions on the winter frameworks and uh, perspectives for country reunification, right? This commercial agreement that, uh, at least for me, does infringe the Irish sovereignty over the Irish Sea because there is no more borders between the UK and Belfast in the Irish Sea, in the Green Channel area, right? Uh, the other thing is having to do with the Electoral Commission Constitution Review. They want to do that change. Is this real going to change the political map to help change Irish politics? Or is just another tool they are using to keep the status quo, right? And I would love you to talk a little about Assange and... Uh, how is to be a journalist in Moscow? You must be terrified. How many ex-KGB agents you have behind your back? That must be amazing. It's... <laughs> I'm just they're, so they're all here now handing me one just handed me a note about how to answer your questions. It's incredible. And I and say that I have to say I love Moscow. I lived there in Lubyanka, Ulita Zukoskova, and had great time, would go back there anytime. So, yeah, I think those are my remarks. And yes, please do a little more kick ass on Leo. I've been missing you doing that lately. <laughs> yeah, well, look, I mean, first things first, I, the, the Windsor Agreement. Uh, I, I, I'm terrified of putting everybody who's not Irish or an association or asleep. So, I really don't want to dwell on this sort of. Uh, fudge, really. I think the Windsor Agreement was a kind of a fudge to the uh, to the Good Friday Agreement. The Good Friday Agreement was a very valid, noble uh, document. It ended the war in the north of Ireland, which I grew up in. 
the, the troubles, as we call it in Ireland, started in 1971. I was born in 1971. So I lived that reality for, you know, until in my mid-30s or whatever. And it was a very, very disturbing and terrible time. So in my view, it's peace at any price other than uh, the potential for more war. So I think it was a good deal. I think the idea of solving unionist concerns about their Britishness and their sovereignty is also a good idea. I, I think the only way to, to a real lasting peace on the island of Ireland is for is for Republicans, and I call myself a Republican, um, and uh, so I suppose a, a left-leaning Republican, uh, the only way that we can realistically do that is to recognise their Britishness and their perceived Britishness and try to incorporate it into a more inclusive Irishness. And they are Irish as well. They've lived centuries on our island, uh, as have many people who've come to our shores. And I think if we want to become real Republicans, we have to base our views of people on their politics, on their views on justice, on society, on, the, on global justice. And I can sit with a Protestant uh, man who considers himself British in Ireland in a bar and drink a pint of beer with him and have a laugh and a chat with him. I don't need to go to war with that man. It's utterly ludicrous. So I think it's probably about wrestling the mechanisms by which we unite in a real united Ireland. Remember, the Irish flag, the green, white and orange, signifies green for the Fenian Irish, uh, orange for the uh, Protestant uh, British, who, who named after the William of Orange, the great uh, Protestant king, who became king of, of, of uh, England and Scotland, I believe. Uh, and white in the middle is to, uh, for peace between these two groups, which form essentially the, the great Irish diaspora. So I think anything that solves their concerns, which they hold very dear to their hearts about their sovereignty. I mean, um, and in some ways, in some ways, and I, I, I'm, I'm worried about even saying this in public, I actually admire in some ways how they defended their their right to their identity and they've uh, dug their heels in in some ways. I think there's a lot to be very interested in and in some ways uh, to learn from their uh, absolute demand that their culture and uh, traditions are respected. I don't agree with them, but I can agree with their uh, determination and uh, it's quite admirable. And I think they've also shown some pragmatism. And I mean, I think it's all about wrestling it away from the political classes who are so incompetent. They, they you know, whatever they set out to do, it turns into a shit show. I think it's really about democratizing uh, peace on the island. And that's done by talking to each other and talking to people. The second uh, uh, question uh, um, about, uh, gosh, I forget your second question now, Guna. What was it to you? Oh, the Electoral Commission review. And if it was just to be a tool to keep the political status quo to continue, or if it yeah. would actually be a, a positive change? I'm very skeptical of any changes um, in, in the Irish political establishment, which, which emanate from the, an Irish political establishment which can't guarantee a hospital bed to an elderly lady, which can't guarantee a, a, a roof to a child and can't guarantee safety to a family to walk the streets of the country. I certainly wouldn't entrust the political uh, uh, halfwits who've been running our country for the last 30 years at least um, with the future of the uh, constitutional uh, structure of a country that they can't uh, even build a single rail line from an airport to the city centre, Gouda. So that's my view on this. I think any 
action by the current uh, cabal running Ireland will be done in a self-serving fashion by, you know, quite pathetically and cringeably low-level corruption, which I think is, you know, endemic in Ireland. So I, I that's really all I'd say about that. And on the, on the last piece, <clears throat> I think, you know, a country like Ireland with such beauty, such incredible people, such magnificent history, it really has a bright future. But I think there has to be real change in Ireland uh, regarding uh, direction and the democratisation of politics again, because we have this uh, gumbean sort of zombie class of politics, these, uh, you know, cringeable, uh, delusional, uh, dynastic uh, reality still pervading Irish politics. And and serial failure is celebrated as uh, being a tough guy survivor in Ireland rather than uh, you're a useless politician who's done nothing for your country. So you should go back to uh, selling influence uh, in, in corporate uh, Britain and uh, America, where most of these cretins end up in the end. Anyway, uh, good. Thank you. I think um, Keith and then Al and then Liam, if we're not taking up too much of Shay's valuable time. Thanks for having me on, folks. Uh, I'm actually from uh, Dublin myself, Shay, so we have that in common. So uh, thanks for allowing me to ask you this question. Uh, so I've been following your, your tweets that you put out there and um, I've been commenting and saying things back and forth. And when I see the death count for the Ukrainian armed forces troops like being at 400,000, I kind of think akin to what has happened over the last three years with the media, either spinning lies or, or not telling the truth. And I'm just wondering, like, after when this becomes a reality for everybody else to, to understand how can the mainstream media have any credibility? Surely they're done in terms of having that credibility. They're never going to be believed at all again when this uh, com you know, comes home to be a uh, fact reality. I'm just wondering what you think about how the mainstream is going to survive uh, post um, the Ukraine conflict. Well, hey, Keith, it's nice to talk to you. And thanks for letting me know that you're watching the, my, my stuff, my tweets, my work. It's really appreciated. It's great to have fellow Irish people um, uh, on uh, supporting, even engaging in any way. It's really great. So I just say one thing to you. I would say uh, when it comes to the delusion about uh, Ukraine, particularly about the scale of the losses with the Ukrainian military, you got to remember the people funding who propagated, built the scaffold for this war, uh, created the illegal coup d'etat, which deposed the probably corrupt and useless uh, elected prime minister uh, uh, in 2014. The same people who did that uh, uh, are also the people who told you that uh, Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction and then went to war and uh, murdered a million people. They murdered a million people. They destroyed the infrastructure of that country uh, from day one. They bombed sewage plants, water plants. They targeted civilian infrastructure from day one. Uh, they invaded Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya. They embarked on a global operation to subvert democracy, to uh, assassinate socialist leaders of countries who'd chosen a better way for their country. They've exploited Africa. They've destabilized the Middle East. They prop up uh, a regime in Israel which murders people regularly, including journalists. They uh, turn a blind eye when Nazis uh, parade through Europe. 
and then use those Nazis and their fervent hatred of Russians uh, to prosecute a brutal uh, proxy war in eastern Ukraine. And when Russia does what America has done uh, dozens of times since the end of the Second World War, when Russia does it once for, in my view, quite rational and uh, probably defensible reasons, although I'm against all war, as soon as Russia does that, Russia becomes the most evil cradle of genocide, hatred and murder ever uh, defined as a state in history. So that's what I'd say to you about it. And the, the absolute engine of all of this, making this permissible, the engine of the uh, making the morality of hatred and uh, promoting the uh, delusion that uh, fear uh, can protect you from war, etc., and the military industrial, the engine of that is the media. They've been complicit in every single post-war conflict, uh, you know, from Korea uh, to Iraq, Afghanistan, go get them, uh, you know, we got them. Uh, you know, this, from the tabloids to the more serious press, I think they have no credibility, Keith, in my view. And they don't have no credibility because uh, I don't like them or because they've said some nasty things about me. Uh, they're free to do that. But they have no credibility because they told the world that Saddam Hussein was the enemy. They told the world that the Vietnamese were evil and that they needed to be essentially exterminated. They told the world that, uh, you know, the communists were coming to get them. They told the world so many lies and they've propagated racism, hatred, uh, the hatred of uh, black Africans. The It goes back as far as, you know, the Boer War, when the British knew what was happening in the camps that they'd opened. They're the, one of the first people to ever open concentration camps, killing 20,000 women and children. Uh, in uh, in Natal in South Africa during the Second World War. The British knew that if the public found out about this uh, wholesale killing of innocent people, starvation, disease, that the British public would be enraged. So they suppressed the media, and I've written articles about that as well. Of course, nobody in the mainstream media wants to republish or engage with me in any debate about any of these topics, and I don't know why that might be, Keith. So as far as losing credibility, you have to have it to lose it. <laughs> um, my the the reason why I'm asking this is because like uh, on the news and in the media, especially like Sky News in the UK and all that, they portray like Ukraine are winning this war. Like I even said something, seen something that was so ridiculous. Like it was a lie that was like caught out instantly if you have uh, functioning eyes and, and a brain. Is that they showed this German Leopard tank, and obviously it was struck by artillery or some type of uh, firing. Um, uh, uh, firing a um, missile or whatever it was and on Sky News they said that this was Russian propaganda <laughs> and that the photo looks, because of the photo pixels it looks like it's been uh, kind of photoshopped or something like that and they never even like, recognise the true reality is that, that, was, that they can't get anywhere near the first line of defence and this is what's going on and I'm just like basically asking the question because like when this reality becomes true to everybody that there's this they, many they will deny it they will they will yeah. the first thing they will do is yeah. they will deny any russian victory it will be it won't be called a russian victory it will be called a a ukrainian failure so the americans and the british and the people who pump billions of dollars of your taxpayers money into ukraine to wage a war uh 
um, a race war, which it's become, which the West is quite happy with. Uh, we had uh, a senior American politician yesterday saying that, uh, uh, that you know, any war that weakens Russia is good for America. Lindsey Graham, you know, it's, it's, it's uh, our blood, their bullets, you know, blah, 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 this usual hateful stuff. So they will deny it. The first thing is you'll never see a headline in the Times, The Economist, The Guardian saying, oh, God, we got it wrong. Sorry about that. Uh, the Russians didn't start the war, uh, the Ukrainians did, uh, and we helped them. Uh, sorry, uh, let's move on. That isn't going to happen. So what what will happen? What will happen, and again, I'm writing an article about that at the moment, is the, the end game here. So what will happen is Ukraine will be blamed for the war. They'll be, be, they will suddenly become what they were before the 24th of February 2022, which was the most corrupt country in Europe, but they will now become the most corrupt country in Europe a trillion dollars pumped into it are totally untraceable hundreds of millions of rounds of ammunition and weapons and they will become demonized as incompetent and uh, delusional they may even become nazis again because nobody wants to support a nazi so the narrative will shift to allow the west to reverse out into another conflict into another fear narrative you know you know you know we can we can also thank vladimir putin for curing the world of covid i don't that's not my one uh, but, you know, you need fear. You need to have a, a major fear narrative. And uh, if anything, Putin cured the world with the world of that. Right. So that's what will happen. So they never will apologize. They never have to because the diet for news, it's a fast food narrative. It's a drive through narrative. It doesn't have to be good for you. It just has to come at you quickly. It needs to be tasty. It needs to be simple. And it needs to sate your hunger. And your, the hunger right now in the West is for fear. People want to be frightened because it allows them to avoid the realities of what's happening on the streets. If you're frightened of uh, Vladimir Putin, you're not too worried that you can't walk down the street to buy a loaf of bread without getting the crap dusted out of you. If you're uh, worried about Xi Jinping invading, you're not going to be too worried about not being able to get a hospital bed and you're probably not going to worry too much about your taxes rising and having to pay through the nose for energy that you could have got much cheaper if they hadn't have sanctioned Russia. So it's about deflection. It's about a narrative and it's about creating a narrative of fear. It sells weapons. It demonizes somebody else and it deflects away from the reality. That's why Boris Johnson ended the peace process that started uh, last year, because he knew that if it was deflected back onto him, he would... Uh, he would get what was coming to him, and it came to him in the end. But it, it, it did allow him to prolong his reign. Uh, so, I mean, you've got to just look at the reality of what's happening. They're not interested in the truth. They're interested in uh, the truth that they're told to tell in order to propagate the same machine that sells the weapons, sells the newspapers. Thanks very much for that, Shay, and uh, I'll keep watching and listening. Thank you. I'll yield to whoever else wants to uh, ask a question. Thanks, everybody. Hi, Sarah. Can I have a go? Um, yeah, it's, uh, it's Al and then Liam and then Anne again. Sorry about that. Oh, no worries, no worries. Uh, again, Sarah, great spaces, learning so much. Thank you very much. And Shay, your answers so far have been so detailed and with such critical analysis. We all really, really appreciate it. Um, Russia obviously has an enormous amount of support from the global south, right? From the CELAC and Mercosur to African Union to the G20 that'll happen in India, from OPEC, from the Arab League, it's evident. Uh, please tell all your friends in Russia 
that it's not only the governments of all these organizations that are rooting for Russia, but also the peoples. You will see Russian flags everywhere from Ghana to Niger to India to Brazil. So Russia has the entire support. And actually, Russia has been the catalyst for the global South finally sniffing some sort of independence. I mean, it's regretful that it's become a West versus the rest, but this is all happening on the back of Russia's bravery and commitment to you know, freedom. And this uh, SMO in Ukraine is, is seismic. It's seismically shifting and uh, towards the abandonment of the old world order that was created in the Second World War. And all this is thanks to Russia. So from all the free peoples and all the people who are yet to achieve their freedom but can finally start dreaming, please tell all your friends there and, of course, to you yourself for constantly reporting. Thank you, Russia. If there's anything we can do, do definitely let us know. Because Russia may not understand, but it's got warriors everywhere. Of course, some like me, just keyboard warriors. But warriors, nevertheless, we will try our best. Russia gets a lot of gratitude from the global majority, which is 90% of the people on planet Earth. And it's just a fact now. Russia is not alone. Russia is not abandoned. doesn't matter what the Western media says. Everybody's with Russia. And frankly, uh, half of America is with Russia, too. If you see the latest polls, you know, 53% of the people think that they've done enough. They don't want to give any more funding to Ukraine. And they're just tired of all the dollars going there. Now, there were a couple of things that you touched upon, which uh, were very, very interesting. You know, I always saw Russia as a very strong nation because it's got oil security, you know, energy security, food security. And as far as its uh, exports are concerned, it's ring fence because China and India, they don't really give a damn about the Western sanctions. But what you pointed out is very critical, and I don't think even the national security guys in the U.S. have thought about it, that the entire Russian defense industrial base is indigenous, from mining to milling to forging. And that's critical. There's no way that Europe or America, essentially the NATO countries, can compete with that because they don't have control over their supply chain. And this is something that even I couldn't formalize in my thoughts. So thank you for pointing this out. And uh, the second thing that you said, which is very interesting, is that, you know, their grandfathers fought Hitler, their great-grandfathers' grandfathers fought Napoleon, and they don't want their grandchildren to keep fighting Nazism. So they're determined to finish this once and for all. So this leads me to two of my questions. Um, just a bit of personal background. I had an ex-girlfriend from Odessa. We dated for a long time. And from everything that I learned from her, Odessa's 80 to 90% Russian. Absolutely. And, you know, everything that happened from the workers' building tragedy in May of 2014 is etched in their memory. So the question that I'm leading to is, if the West was to offer, not a ceasefire, because I can imagine Kremlin won't accept a ceasefire, but to offer a peace plan at the moment, which also would include Ukraine's neutrality somehow. Would Russia accept it, given that it still doesn't have Odessa and to a certain extent, I guess, Nikolaev? I don't know much about Nikolaev, though. Because leaving Odessa to the Ukrainians means that there's always an egress, or sorry, an ingress uh, channel available for weapons. That's the first thing. 
And the second thing is moving forward from there, once I guess the Ukrainian military collapses, and it will, they can't last forever with another round of mobilization of 70 or 80 year old people. If Russia does take everything east of the Dnieper, and including, let's say, Odessa and Kiev, what's the future for the rump Ukrainian state? Again, let's assume it'll be neutral. Um, it's not going to be economically viable in the sense that it'll go into stasis, right? So the situation I imagine is you've got a bunch of neo-Nazis stuck in a rump state on Western Ukraine, sorry, not Eastern Ukraine, Western Ukraine, who are very resentful now towards the West. And the European Union, you know, given that it already has problems of inflation, recession, deindustrialization, and immigration problems, now they've got, I mean, you know history very well, Bader-Meinhof times 1,000 armed, angry neo-Nazis. So has Russia ever tried to raise this topic in international forums that look, I mean, we see Europe on a suicide mission. Shouldn't Russia be warning the West as well that the way this thing is going, it's going to end up very badly for Europe? And the final couple of things, yes, back to Margaret Simonian, please tell your KGB handlers, get her to unblock me. And could you get Medvedev to make a tweet offering Kaya Kalis's husband Russian citizenship, or perhaps even some tax breaks for his trucking company. That would break the internet. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very good. Very good. Yeah, I mean, look, I think you, know, you, you make so many, so many really, really good points. I mean, I don't, I don't really know where to start. I mean, I think, again, most of what you say, again, it's, it's, people are insulated from the reality because they choose to be okay about Russia's manufacturing base about everything you talk about I think regarding uh, Odessa and Nikolaev and a deal I don't think I personally don't I think the Russians will talk to everybody uh, or anybody about peace or about a deal but they won't stop fighting there's absolutely no way they will stop fighting and I think that's a kind of an old Russian tactic that they will talk but they will keep fighting I mean, they're certainly not going to stop now and allow uh, the Ukrainians uh, or NATO to catch a breath, uh, catch up logistically with Russia. And the Russian machine is so vast. Its industrial base is so vast. It takes so long to spin up, to gain this huge momentum. And it's spinning up now and it's gaining momentum. <clears throat> and it's going to be irresistible, in my view, on the battlefield and economically. So I just don't see why Russia would choose to do that. I think I've heard senior Russian officials, uh, I think I've heard Lavrov and Medvedev uh, talk about this, and I don't see uh, any rationale from a, a, a political or military uh, uh, standpoint as to why Russia would want to let Ukraine off the ropes now. I mean, I don't see why they would need to or want to do that. I mean, you know... This is my view, and I consider it an informed view here. Of course, I have no idea what the what official Russia thinks. And I think there would be huge surprise here in domestically in Russia. There'd be huge relief if there was a peace deal and the war ended, uh, because nobody wants the war. Nobody wants to see a war prosecuted against what they see as a brotherly nation uh, in Russia. This is my view. But there would be 
significant political and military uh, surprise if there was a peace deal signed now uh, and I don't see why what the uh, what, what the Russians would gain from this because I certainly don't think the Russians can ever trust uh, the West again, again in this generational space where they've been through uh, the Minsk Accords where Merkel and uh, uh, et al. have all admitted that the Minsk too, anyway, was was uh, perpetuated in order to allow uh, Ukraine to arm to basically assault Crimea uh, and or the Donbass. So they've admitted that, and I've written extensively about that also. So I do not see any military uh, rationale or political rationale within Russia to let Ukraine off the ropes now, to use that boxing analogy. Thank you. I do have one question, quick question from the audience before um, we move on to Liam. It's really quick. Uh, it is about Prigozhin. Uh, do you th- what, who do you think killed Prigozhin and his Wagner comrades and if evidence emerged that it might have been Putin would you be allowed to say it on RT <laughs> well I'm allowed to say anything I want on RT which is something people go oh my people god people don't realize that that like they give English speaking commentators so much freedom I mean remember when Abby came up and like basically like tore Russia a new butthole about over Crimea and they were like okay you can still work here but you need to go to Crimea like, I think people think that RT is like, I, we give you what to say. Yeah, I think regarding Prigozhin, okay, here's, um, I wasn't a big fan of Prigozhin, okay? Now we know he is actually dead. I'm, I'm, I'm not scared. I can say it now. <laughs> no, I'm joking. But um, I was never a big fan of Prigozhin. And I always thought it was an unusual reality that an individual would be allowed to have such power over such potentially destructive force within a, uh, you know, a state. I, I thought it was unusual, but he was very useful for what he did. And remember, he, this guy really, you know, had a serious impact in Ukraine, uh, particularly in Artemovsk or Bakhmut. This is an absolute reality. Who killed him? I don't know who killed him. And I think anybody who says they do know is probably making uh, significant gaps in a vacuum where nobody knows. I don't think anyone will ever actually know who who killed him. Is the Kremlin happy he's gone? I would imagine so. Uh, is Are the CIA happy he's gone? I would imagine so. Are several of his business associates happy he's gone? I would imagine so. And are the people who are now going to take over uh, Wagner Group and all its assets and uh, significant influence, power and uh, uh, future, are they happy? Absolutely so. So you've got a lot of horses in the race. Uh, so anyone saying they know exactly who did it, that's, you know, you know, that's just pure speculation. I do think, though, that, you know, uh, I know this as well from talking to a couple of people who would know uh, on the fringes of the Wagner sort of organization. And I spent some time with a couple of Wagner fighters and commanders before I, I covered the Prigozhin sort of uh, throwing his toys out of the pram, which is what I like to call it. People say, oh, this was a rebellion or I think it's so pathetic. It's so ludicrous. There was no rebellion. There was no, you know, insurrection. It's just utterly ridiculous. It was a billionaire throwing his toys out of the pram because he knew he was about to get defanged. The Kremlin were about to sort of try to integrate, I think, uh, 
Wagner into the wider Russian military. There was a there was a desire for that within Wagner, I'm told, to some degree, to normalize things for pensions and stuff like this as well. I mean, this is quite mundane. Uh, so he threw his toys out of the pram and he uh, decided he was going to, uh, you know, go and meet uh, Shoigu in Moscow. He didn't, of course, so it was a climb down by him and I think it was masterfully de-escalated in my view. Uh, thankfully, only a handful of people died, unfortunately. Um, so who did it? I don't know who did it. Uh, could the Kremlin have done it? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they could have. Could the CIA have done it? Absolutely. I mean, the reality is if the Kremlin wanted to do it, why do it in such a dramatic way? Send a signal, blah, blah, blah. I mean... I mean, it's it's it does so much, uh, so much hearsay. You just can't say for sure. But on the fringes of Wagner, people have said, and they've said it openly, that they believe that uh, Wagner was about to pivot to Africa. And remember, this is something I mentioned in a report on RT, talking to another Irishman, Union <coughs> O'Neill. I I mentioned the Union. I said he had. So the deal was done. He was to go to, to Belarus. He was in Belarus. They were building the camps. The West were sure that Wagner were going to invade Poland, all this insanity, right? And suddenly, Prigozhin uh, turns up in Africa. And he's saying, we're here in 50-degree heat. We're working here. And, you know, what the West uh, does not need right now, is you, or did not need, is Yevgeny Prigozhin uh, heading down to Africa to prop up uh, these resurgent uh, nationalist uh, regimes that are propping up down there. That's one thing the West did not need. So uh, I'll leave that with the audience. I mean, uh, who benefited from his demise? You could say the CIA, uh, uh, you know, didn't want to see this guy, quite capable guy, you know, I, I did a long piece on his life. You know, so there's he had a lot of enemies, okay? And, you know... I, I don't think anybody uh, denies that you know he was a, a he, he he was a sort of a, a rare animal and he was going to have a lot of problems in his life after what he'd done here in Russia, and he had he had enemies he had a lot of enemies uh, so I don't know who killed him uh, it could have been a number of people but I think the interesting one is probably that it came from the West what a beautiful cover you know uh, Putin assassinates everybody who crosses him you know it's ridiculous uh, just in case. Putin, you know, had uh, masterfully used Prigozhin, uh, and that's the reality. So I don't know, and I doubt that it was uh, the Kremlin. That's my view. Thank you. Go ahead, Liam, and then Iggy. Thank you so much, and and let me say what a what a pleasure it is to be here with with Mr. Bose as as an ancestrally Irish person living in diaspora, I always enjoy two things, which is hearing someone from the homeland and hearing someone from the homeland who is a writer. Uh, everyone knows that Ireland has the greatest English language writers anywhere in the world. This is not open for debate. That is that is just a fact. So, Mr. Bose, I appreciate your your fine work, and I hope that uh, I hope that you're safe and well uh, in Russia. I hope that. You feel free to drink tea and walk past windows and that these things uh, do not concern you. I wasn't planning to, to come up because I'm not an expert on, on, on the war or, or on the politics. But you, you made a point about the, the church that fascinated me uh, because it is the opposite of what the church is saying. And, and Bartholomew, the ecumenical patriarch of, of, of Constantinople, has put out a series of comments essentially to the effect that 
the Russian church is being held prisoner and sort of isn't free to carry out its normal operations for that purpose. They've created a new autocephalous church in, in Ukraine and separated them from the Russian patriarch, just as the Orthodox Church of America uh, has separated from the Russian uh, patriarch. It's also interesting to me that the most prolific Orthodox theologian of the last hundred years, uh, Callistos Ware, who in 2015 updated his seminal work, The Orthodox Church, said that the two most oppressive regimes to Orthodoxy in the history of the world have been naturally the Turks, uh, but in no particular order, the Turks and the Russians. So, I, you know, I appreciate that you saw, you know, the church and the mosque, you know, next to each other and you like the buildings. But besides looking at those buildings and perhaps looking at, you know, Russian government content um, or, or hearing content from uh, Patriarch Carol, who I don't believe is free to speak, I'm not sure what you're relying on exactly to say that there's some kind of religious harmony and orthodoxy going on in Russia. And I'd be interested to hear where you got that idea. Okay, well, first of all, I'm not a, a theologian and I'm not an expert in religious affairs. That's the first thing, okay? So I have to preface everything I say about religion in that respect. I'm not a religious man either. So uh, that's the third thing I'd say. So where I got the ideas from is I live here and I live among the Russians and I pass the churches and I, I uh, you know, I, I live and breathe and work with a lot of Orthodox Russians. And the second thing I'd say to you is, and again, all of this is from a position of absolute ignorance. You've obviously, you're obviously a scholar of, of the Orthodox Church, and I bow to your knowledge of that. But I'd also respectfully suggest that you accept that when men, and there's a lot of men involved in the Orthodox Church, uh, broker divinity by trying to demonize a government or a country, uh, you have to ask who is funding, who are funding those men. And I know that the uh, the gentleman you mentioned from Constantinople is essentially funded from the United States. He's got a very close relationship with the U.S. State Department. He's uh, had several meetings with high-level U.S. Uh, individuals, and uh, I believe... Uh, he is in close contact with uh, senior people in the American administration. So I would not be surprised, and I, I am not surprised when I hear that religious division is fostered, uh, you know, um, accelerated and fomented by uh, the U.S. Uh, Secret Services and intelligence community. I mean, that's a fact. I mean, we all know that's the case. They've done it in Ukraine between the Catholic Church and the Orthodox Church. They've done it as they tried to suggest that the Russian Orthodox Church, and the clue is in the name, uh, has associations with Moscow. Wow, big surprise. Uh, isn't it shocking? It's kind of like the South China Sea. Uh, the, the Chinese are in trouble for patrolling the South China Sea, and the Russian Orthodox Church is in trouble for having associations with Russia. So again, I'm not a theologian. I'm not a particularly religious man. But all I can say is that in my time in Russia, and my time in Russia is spent listening, talking, asking questions, and trying to uh, understand the very complex people and a very complex religious history. I see the the Orthodox Church is is exceptionally influential. Uh, I would have to disagree with you in suggesting that it's suppressed in any way. I think uh, it is probably quite the opposite. The Orthodox Church is quite 
aggressively promoted by the Russian state. I mean, there's two myths about Russia that it's, uh, you know, it's a communist country. Uh, number one, it's not a communist country. It's an absolutely aggressive uh, capitalist uh, uh, market-driven economy now. And other that there's some suppression of religion. There isn't. I think there's there's tens of millions of Muslims live here, and they live here alongside you know uh, you know many many more uh, Orthodox Christians, Roman Catholics, Protestants, uh, etc. So I I have seen no evidence whatsoever of suppression of any religion here in Russia, uh, and I can only speak from my own view. I haven't seen any diktats or laws passed or any sort of oppression on the streets of any sort of religious faith. I saw a bunch of Buddhists dancing up the street here. I live on in the city uh, centre of Moscow earlier on today. So again, I bow to your knowledge. You've obviously got a uh, an academic knowledge and understanding of the Orthodox religion. Uh, it's quite uh, complex. Um, I did cover the... Uh, the Ukrainian attack on the Lavra in Ukraine, the, one of the oldest uh, Orthodox churches in the world, I believe. You may know more about it than I. I saw the brutal treatment of the monks there, who, because uh, the SBU found uh, some circulars uh, which mentioned Moscow, they uh, basically evicted the monks from the Lavra. Uh, I've seen some kind of brutal treatment of, of people for being in the Russian Orthodox Church, for being accused of being part of Russia. And it wouldn't be the first time that political, in my view, political power uses religion to try and cause fractures within uh, the fabric of a country by using religion. It, I'm an Irishman, remember, and I grew up during a war where white uh, Anglo-Celtic Irish people murdered each other in the most brutal ways known to mankind because we believed in a different version of the same religion. So that's where I'd leave it. Thank you. Um, we'll take Iggy, and then I, well, I have some kind of breaking news I want Shay's opinion on. So go ahead, Iggy. Hi guys, thanks very much. Appreciate the uh, chance to speak to Shay. Um, Shay, I'm just wondering if I can run this by you and see what you think from your perspective as a as a journalist, as a writer, and now somebody living in a Westerner in Russia. The way the way I look at, at our time um, now as consumers of information, and particularly in the context of the Ukraine war, is there are two things that are happening that we don't overtly refer to, which is information warfare and cognitive warfare being waged against populace, the populace of a nation, not the enemy populace, but one's own populace. And that cognitive warfare theory is not a theory, it is actually a doctrine of war published by NATO, which literally does specify that war is won partly in the minds of one's own nation by convincing one's own nation essentially to believe what your war um, agenda is. And, and that's part of the win, which doesn't, doesn't entirely make sense if you are facing a, a total loss on a battlefield. But inherently, what it's getting at is it is um, a fundamental part of NATO and NATO policy um, countries to pro aggressively propagandize its own nation, their own nations. And so when we look at, like, when I look at the Ukraine, in the Western press, there is a grotesquely inconsistent narrative that has shifted constantly, and it constantly fails a backtest. Any time you pick a story and you go back and say, okay, three months later, did that hang, hang together? No, it doesn't. There are blatant propagandists in sort of like, for example, The Telegraph, like Hamish de Bretton Gordon, Richard Kemp, 
Robert Clark, all of these people who are literally cannot keep anything together. And, and week to week, they just put out these kind of bizarre knee-jerk statements, which just don't make sense in the moment. And then they dissolve on contact with fresh air. And by comparison, what I sort of, the way I characterize this and why it's important is because I feel that there is a massive wall between the Western enclosed media sphere, which is essentially what Russia refers to as the empire of lies, and the Russian information machine that can't really penetrate that. And it seems to me that Russia is just simply doing in the information warfare space what it's doing roughly on the Ukrainian battlefield, which is to just constantly be, be consistent in the nature of the information it puts out, what it wants, why it's in Ukraine, what it will settle for, and then essentially what its red lines are, although it has, you know, tolerated a lot. And then, and then it releases truth bombs about what it's finding with the, with bio labs for example and then essentially what progress it's making but it never really embellishes heavily it never tries to claim things it hasn't done and it just grinds out this count of today we destroyed this today we destroyed this today we destroyed this and over time that kind of approach to the propaganda war basically seems to be winning to me because it does not create a divergence from itself it may get, take longer to grind along, and it may be far less sensational, but you do not get a cognitive dissonance gap, whereas in the UK or in the West, you've got this gigantic cognitive dissonance gap going, the things I'm reading about in the news fall over very quickly or don't make any sense or don't match what's in the battlefield. And once you get that going in somebody's brain, it's, I, I think you end up with a strangely confused nation. And when I see what people think is going on in Ukraine and, and I see how they communicate with each other about it on Twitter or wherever, even in the comments of newspapers, it's, I've never seen this level of propaganda in, in people before. Uh, Post-COVID, post-Ukraine, it's gone nuts. And I think that this is cognitive warfare, but it's not being done very well. Any thoughts on that? Well, the first thing I'd say is I think it's a really eloquent description of the reality. That's the first thing I'd say. So I'd say, well done to you, sir. It's a very eloquent description of the reality. I couldn't have put it better myself. But the key problem with this is, is that the Russians do understand that this war is won by men in trenches, by artillery, uh, by air superiority, which they have, super superiority in men, which they have the defender's advantage which they have, the military-industrial complex, uh, the advantage in the scale and size of that which they have, time which they have, uh, a political system less uh, volatile, less, uh, what's the word, impacted by uh, knee-jerk sort of a social movement. It's all stacked in Russia's favour. The Russians know this. So the Russians are masterful in the game of reality. And they are grinding out this conflict slowly, quickly. There are no knee-jerk reactions. The Russian military has evolved into a very pragmatic uh, unit. It's acting when it needs to. It's withdrawing when it needs to. It's pulling back. It's uh, accepting the tidal nature of warfare. As far as the Western uh, narrative is concerned, there is no tidal nature in warfare. And there is a tidal nature in all warfare. There's only a way forward. There's only one winner. There's only one absolute truth. But the problem for the Western media is it's an entirely hollow narrative, as you say. None of what the Western media tells a man in Middlesex uh, 
to convince him to be happy to give his uh, tax uh, money to Ukraine is going to actually win the war in Ukraine. None of it. None of uh, demonizing uh, the Russian ambassador or the prime minister or President Putin in the Daily Telegraph, none of that. That might stop people protesting for an end to the Ukrainian war, but it will not stop the war itself. And the Russians are focused on two things, in my view. They're focused on uh, inflicting a vast war of attrition on Ukraine, which they've won. And we've talked about, uh, you know, the, the impact of casualties on Ukraine. I'd say Doug McGregor is probably in the right uh, ballpark when he says 400,000 dead. But the vast number of injuries, the Europe's hospitals are getting uh, sort of uh, covertly flooded. The military hospitals anyway in Germany are full with amputees from, from Ukraine. So there is a vast uh, tailwind of critical injury, which has totally uh, maxed out the Ukrainian system. And it's now filtering into places like the Czech Republic uh, and Germany. So this huge uh, attrition on Ukraine is utterly unsustainable. The Wonderwaffe, which the, the recent article I wrote for RT and op-ed about the F-16, again, that is now, I think we're on, we're on chapter six of Wonderwaffe, none of which are going to impact the length of this uh, conflict. The only thing they're going to impact is the amount of Ukrainians that need to die. The Ukrainians are now talking about absolute mobilization in places like uh, Kharkov. And they've also, Zelensky has admitted that there will have to be a, a total mobilization of the population. There's already men in their 60s and 70s fighting. Uh, the Euromaidan press today put out a tweet of four men in their 60s uh, fighting and portrayed it as uh, heroism. What it portrays is absolute desperation. Uh, so the, the big issue here is how... And this is what I'm writing about at the moment is how does a machine, a trillion dollar, uh, uh, you know, information machine, which is based on absolute fallacy and untruth, how does it revert out of the inevitability of what actually happens on the battlefield? And I, I outline it in my article, which I'll post on Twitter when it's done. But basically, my thesis is, is that it'll be one of blame. So the first thing will be to blame Ukraine for being incompetent, corrupt, and led by uh, an idiot. Uh, the second thing will be to say that the idiot and the corrupt country wouldn't listen to and wouldn't do it the way we told them. And this is all beginning. It's all playing out right now with Ukraine blaming the West for not giving them the weapons fast enough, allowing the Russians to dig in. And the West saying, you're blowing up all the leopards, use more humans to detonate the mines. So this uh, beginning, there's trouble in paradise. So this will end, in my view, with Ukraine being thrown under the bus uh, Ukraine being ordered to do a peace deal, Russia potentially rejecting it, and then Ukraine being thrown to the uh, to the Russian lines in the Colosseum, and uh, what will happen will happen. But all along, the Western media will get to say, we told you so, we warned you so. So I think that narrative will shift, but, but it will happen, in my view, in tandem with a new information war about China uh, around Taiwan, uh, they they do with the Uyghurs, uh, they do it with uh, you know human rights in China, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But I think the danger point is comes at the apex of that triangle where it's uh, it's like a Ponzi scheme of information. There will be a moment when uh, the checks stop getting cashed regarding the claims, and people will sort of say, "Well, what's this all about?" And then it will be about blame. I think that's the only way out of it for the Western media. But an, an exceptionally Brilliant question. Thanks, Cher. Appreciate it. Thank you, Iggy. Hi, Igor. Um, uh, we just had a drone attack. Did you see, Shay? 
Um, so this is some breaking news. I'll just ask your opinion if you have time. A drone attack up in the Tuscom Air uh, airfield. Four IL-76s were damaged. Um, it's about 600 kilometers from Kiev, so it's obviously not Ukrainian. And it's right next to the Baltics. So uh, 20, a swarm of 20 drones. Um, and obviously not all were shot down. So I would kind 40, of your 40 opinion. kilometers from Estonia. Huh? 40 kilometers from Estonia. So it could yeah. be Estonia or yeah, Latvia. Yeah, yeah. I think something that's interesting about these drone attacks is, and again, again, this has no strategic value militarily. It just simply doesn't. I mean, the size of the Russian fleet, it, it they'll be repaired. They'll close the gap in the air defense. It's just Ukraine saying we can do it. But the other thing is that these didn't originate in Ukraine. They originated just across the border. You know, they're easily assembled and deployed and sent. And so, you know, again, it, it has no, and it actually feeds beautifully into Iggy's uh, point that what is important now in Ukraine isn't actually saving the lives of the maybe three or 400 Ukrainians who'd be maimed or killed today and tomorrow. That's irrelevant. What is important is maintaining some sort of heroic rally around the flag narrative in the Western press, which will be presented tomorrow. Ukraine is worrying the Russians. We can strike you where at will. It's this delusional narrative that this type of stuff is going to have any impact on the uh, conflict in Ukraine or its outcome. It just has no impact. And everybody here knows it. The military planners here know it. And if anything, it will steal people here uh, against uh, the, the Kiev regime. That's my, that's my view. But this was just originated from a NATO country. If that is proved then there's got to be some sort of a reaction otherwise i don't i don't think we well, remember remember all of the weapons currently being used by ukraine originate in nato countries all of the ammunition all of the money paying the uh, the the military originates outside of ukraine everything ukraine is is purely now a a meat puppet sadly for nato and for the west it has no sovereignty it has no intrinsic capacity to defend itself or uh, do anything but offer up conscripted men uh, to uh, the you know dubious fate of second-rate NATO castoffs. So that's what's happening in Ukraine, unfortunately. And there's actually a, a quite a accelerated rush to dump F-16s into Ukraine, or the promise of them, because they know that the the wind the shop is going to shut soon. Because I don't see the war lasting long enough for enough countries to get their F. Uh, 16 dumped in to get a promise of them from the United States. So it's 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 a great grim reality. But I don't think these actually originated within Estonia. They probably originated. It's a vast, you know, forested area there. They can deploy them from anywhere. You can, there's so many Ukrainians in Russia and people that could, you know, take a few quid from somebody to do this type of stuff. They're easily assembled and deployed. Again, you know, damaged, what does damaged mean? You know, they're not destroyed. The gap will be plugged and on things will go. This is about PR, as Iggy said. And it's what's interesting is that the Ukrainian uh, regime, that Zelensky et al., would far rather waste that resource and time and energy trying to get a headline than actually doing something on the uh, Eastern Front to mitigate the losses of all these, uh, these men who are dying needlessly. Go ahead, Eric. Thank you very much. 
So my uh, question slash concern slash interrogation is, we've seen now the result of the war. Every time there's something happening, the West say, yeah, Ukraine is winning, even though they're not really winning. Uh, in the long run, it would be, um, if we talk just about non-nuclear war, yeah, in the end, Russia will probably win this one. Uh, which brings me to the nuclear conflict probability. Because if you remember, just like you mentioned before, uh, Che, that these odds are very low because people, they want to have their yacht, they want to have their life, they want to have their family, etc. But if you remember, when you go back to 2021, this is uh, when uh, Joe Biden got uh, elected. And then he had his first meeting, I think in March 2021, with Vladimir Putin. And essentially what came out of that meeting is that the both men agreed that nuclear war was not useful to anyone. They would not go to nuclear war. At this moment, I'm like, okay, World War III has just begun because Biden just got his green light from Putin that there won't be nuclear war. Therefore, he will try everything to go to war. Exactly what happened, yeah? And they had the conflict. And then you got, in the last maybe 12 months or so, every now and then Russia, either Medvedev or somebody else, keeps on saying, yeah, but we might use all our arsenal, implying nuclear, this and that. If it's just empty threats, why would they keep on doing it? And could there be a probability of slippage? Because what are the odds that the West will accept a defeat also? If they do accept a defeat, where will they counterattack? Yeah, because there's... Yeah, let me just, let me just, let me just, just say something there, if I may. I've never heard a Russian official, a senior politician or general or anybody who would have any authority to have any elemental role in the launch of a nuclear weapon threaten the West with a nuclear weapon. Any comments made by Medvedev, Putin or any senior Russian uh, official, anybody who's part of the apparatus of the state, have been taken absolutely out of context. Putin has never threatened to destroy the West with a nuclear weapon, ever. And I mean, if anyone can provide that, they can post it in, uh, in, in at me and in Twitter. It simply doesn't exist. You got to remember something, and I say this to you very respectfully. When the only country on earth who's ever used a nuclear weapon against a civilian population, without warning, not once but twice, and killed hundreds of thousands of people, is the country warning you that another country is going to drop a nuclear weapon on you? You really need to evaluate what the mechanism of that warning is. Which is, I don't know if that's clear enough. That's why I'm worried. I mean, about so, the so, not being used first. You see what I mean? Yeah, 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 yeah. This, this is my point. I think, I think if there was any remote possibility of a, a nuclear exchange, I don't see it being any first strike by the Russians. I mean, why on earth would the Russians use a nuclear weapon when they're winning the war in Ukraine? They're winning the war in Ukraine. This is There's no easier, clearer way to put it. The Russians are winning the war. They're winning the war in Ukraine on the ground in the trenches. They're winning the logistical war. They're winning the econo-cultural war because the vast majority of uh, people in the world not, uh, you know, deluded by a the same machine which is funding the weaponry into Ukraine, into the media, uh, uh, are not against Russia. Russia is not isolated. I mean, I've been uh, covering the forums and the, 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 the global south, the world is not against Russia. The Anglosphere is against Russia and the Anglosphere is against Russia and 
it's against uh, anybody who dares to dissent from the dollar-driven sort of subservience, which is uh, neo-conservative uh, uh, hegemony. So that's the reality. So if anybody is going to use a weapon of mass destruction, you, you have to use the adage, uh, uh, the best predictor of past uh, future behavior is past behavior. You, you know, you'll hear that a lot. So the other reality about nuclear weapons is the only country that's ever used them without warning against the civilian population, not once but twice, the only country that's ever done that now tells the rest of the world who can have them. So when you hear uh, Anthony Blinken and, uh, you know, uh, the Secretary of Defence, uh, Lloyd Austin, and Victoria Newland, and these career uh, uh, war peddlers talk about a threat from Russia, you should really, really consider who the threat is really coming from. I'm worried about when you read. I'm worried about Newland and Lincoln and those guys actually causing an escalation uh, nuclear and perhaps launching the first shot. Remember, what I'm worried about here also, which I didn't maybe did not express correctly, is that you have such a division and such a chaos in American politics with people being fed so much bullshit to left, right, and center that in that instability, uh, you could have a slippage where, you know, one thing leads to the other, to the other, where they actually start such uh, going on down such a path. Yeah. I, I just I just don't think it's within the Russian psyche or psychology here to buy into that, if it was to happen. If it was a mistake, it's a mistake. It, mistakes happen, of course. But I think a lot of people a lot smarter than me, and dare I say it, you have pre-thought not allowing that type of slippage to happen. I don't think some guy's going to spill his coffee on a big red button and we're all going to get fried. I don't think that's how it works. I think what happens is there's a cascade of events which are very closely monitored. I don't see it happening. And earlier on, I kind of addressed the reality of, uh, particularly in the United States, where the military-industrial complex is predicated upon a huge fear narrative, not particularly war, because we've seen that war has rapidly depleted the military-industrial complex of the United States. They don't have enough weapons. Uh, I mean, Joe Biden said the thinking part out loud recently when he walk, walked into a room in one of his rare lucid moments. He said, we're running out of shells. We're running out of ammo. That's where we're giving the Ukrainians weapons that we previously said were, you know, should be illegal. So the reality is, is that the, the American military industrial complex is not fit to fight any sort of war, certainly not against uh, Russia, which is fighting the biggest land uh, uh, combined arms war in Europe since the end of the Second World War. Uh, it's certainly not in a position to fight one against uh, China now that it's allied with Russia uh, and Iran. I mean, where does it all go? So I think the fear narrative is far more profitable to allow the American military industrial complex time to manufacture more weapons, expand its uh, dubious relationships with countries like Australia uh, in the South, uh, in the Pacific region, and expand the sort of influence of NATO if NATO survives the, in my view, imminent uh, defeat it's facing, uh, its proxy is facing, at least in Ukraine. That's that's my view on nuclear on a nuclear confrontation. I just don't think it serves the greasy sort of, uh, 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 you know, interests of the military industrial complex. And they, that will trump everything, political and otherwise, in my view. Thank you. 
Is there anybody else that has anything? I mean, we've we've monopolized two and a half hours of Shay's of Shay's valuable time. I think there might be like one one more, and it's up to you guys. If you want to keep the space open for talking, or I can close it and open a non-recorded space or whatever. But I would definitely need a co-host because I have work I have to do. So, um, the surgeon, did you want to say anything? Uh, hey, uh, yeah, again, about this last attack on Russian soil from, uh, from, uh, I forget the name. Uh, it feels like they are trying to force Russian hand to finish the deal on Ukraine because it's, it's, a, that campaign is no longer sustainable for the West. Yeah, I think, yeah, I mean, look, regarding forcing forcing Russia's hand, it's not something that, uh, it's not in the Russian DNA to have their hands forced. I just don't see uh, Putin or the uh, the government here or the senior decision makers having their uh, uh, hand forced by desperate measures like, uh, you know, pinprick drone attacks, even if they destroyed four uh, bombers or you know, 20 bombers. It's not going to deter Russia from its uh, stated aim. And the longer this operation in Ukraine or uh, military action or conflict or war, however you would like to call it, the longer it goes on, Russia's very clear aims at the start of it seem to become more into focus. And it seems to be more lucid what they said at the start, to demilitarize Ukraine and denazify Ukraine, which some people thought, oh, these are a bit bizarre, these, uh, you know, these uh, statements from the Russians. The longer this goes on, in my view, the more clarity that brings to what is actually going to happen. And I think it was Iggy earlier on who very eloquently sort of outlined that, that Russia is on a course now, and it's not going to be deterred from it by these uh, PR-seeking uh, pinprick attacks that have absolutely zero strategic impact on the uh, direction of this conflict. Absolute zero. So I, I just urge people to really understand that. And in some ways, by sort of buying into this, that this is a Russia is going to invade Estonia or Latvia now because uh, the, a couple of drones came over the border. It, that's simply not going to happen. Okay. What's going to happen is Russia is going to now. Uh, focus uh, it's it's you know emulating and spinning up uh, military industrial complex into Ukraine to get this job finished how the how it ends nobody really knows uh, but I certainly don't but I can tell you this it will not be, uh, there will not be a deterrence from that now because Russia has I think evolved its thinking around this conflict that it has to be finished and it has to be finished uh, uh, in a long-term way, that it has to have a long-term uh, reality. And Russia's security guarantees, remarkably, are never talked about. And it's a disregard for Russia's uh, security guarantees and its belief that it faced an existential threat in Ukraine from NATO. It's the disregard of that that brought us to this war, whatever way you think about it, who started it, who didn't. It's the blatant disregard in the West for Russia's, in my view, very... Uh, plausible uh, concerns about Ukraine uh, that brought us here. So uh, four drones landing and damaging a bomber or breaking a window in the city of Moscow are not going to change anything whatsoever. Thank you. Um, go ahead, Eric. Just one last quick comment. It's just 
You know, when I see whichever country runs out of conventional ammo, is the first one to probably consider going nuclear. That's how I see it. And we know who ran out, right? Can anybody ben. Guys, will will I will I can I do you mind if I say if I if I if I say I'm going to actually jump off now because yeah. uh, my FB my FSB handlers have told me I have to go I have to go back in to get my brain retuned in because I was being a bit uh, a bit liberal there or something they said I I said some stuff that I shouldn't have done so I would like to recant everything I said again about Prigozhin Putin I didn't mean it I was drunk it was you know I'm in a brothel whatever just my FSB guys have told me to say that uh, so I'm going to actually jump off but it's been great fun. I really appreciate the, the, the messages and thanks, DD, for having me. Him. Follow Shay. We're trying to get his account to fifty thousand by by Labor Day. That's I think that's September second or something like that. Follow me to Russia and let's go on the beer. Yep. It's a great place. Follow Shay. Follow on. me. <laughs> all right, thanks, Shay. Thanks, guys. Okay. Love you all. Go Bye. ahead, Ben. Are you Thank there? Thank you so much, Ben. Hey. Yeah. Ben? Just a quick one. Ben? Ben, did you want to do your big commercial for the gray zone? He's doing a party. He's on a party break. Ben is? I Why guess so. Mic? I hope not. His mic is open. <laughs> All right. So what I think that we should do is let me end this and start a new space if you guys want a space. Do you want a space? Yes. Thank you, Didi, for letting me speak. Okay, then one of you guys are going to have to co-host, but I don't. I just don't want to have a long recording, so I'm going to shut this space down and open a new one. And as a favor to Ben, I'll just do a shout-out. So the Gray Zone recently had their uh, GoFund. I don't know if you guys know what the Gray Zone is. Not the Russian Gray Zone, the English-speaking Gray Zone, alternative media company. Um, they, uh, they lost their GoFundMe was seized for, as they said, outside reasons and haven't really disclosed them. Uh, so $90,000 has been seized. Um, you can go, they have alternative ways. If you've donated, you need to immediately ask GoFundMe for a refund and they have alternative ways to support them on Max's uh, feed and Gray Zone. So, all right, I'll open up this space and I'll make Al or somebody be the co-host. All right, see you guys in a second. <laughs>